Christopher Lee's Lightbringer presents The Mythical Astronomy of Ice and Fire Happy Halloween, everyone. Thank you for joining us here on the Whores of the Crypts live stream. <laughs> I had to look far and wide for someone to match my diabolical nature, and I have found such a person. That person is known to you as Joe Magician. Hello, I am Joe Magician, also known as Matt. I am a purveyor of tinfoil and the archmaster of higher mysteries. Tonight, at least. Is that a uh, tinfoil rod <laughs> mask and ring that you have no, there? it's supposed to be Valyrian steel, but I don't know. It looks a little cheaper. Valyrian tinfoil, we'll have to call it. Valyrian tinfoil. All right. I myself am Old Man Winter. If I could just sort of get to my <laughs> horns a little more straight there. Yeah, you've aged a lot recently. And I am not going to talk like this the whole time, because that would be annoying. Hey. Hey, Joe. <laughs> or should I say Matt? Did we decide? What am I going to call you? Uh, let's go for Joe, just for the ambiance. All right, Joe. Valyrian tinfoil maester that you are. <laughs> That's true. So what we're going to do today is uh, we've got about an hour of scripted material. And then we're going to open it up for questions and comments and mockery. And all that kind of thing. Hopefully not too much mockery. So, without further ado, Joe will get us started. The Song of Ice and Fire is a series full of fantasy and wonder, but also mystery and horror. Indeed, and sometimes the answers to the mysteries are the horrors. For three books, Bran dreamed of a magical three-eyed crow who he imagined would heal his broken body. Instead, he finds a cave full of bones and creepy elves and a grisly talking corpse who feeds him his friend ground up into a paste in order to teach him astral projection or green sight, as it's more commonly known. That's right, and it was not hard to see Danny's plot in A Game of Thrones leading up to the hatching of the dragon's eggs, but did anyone foresee the horrors of Miri Mazdur's tent of dancing shadows? Danny losing her child, having to suffocate her comatose husband, followed by her burning someone alive and working blood magic? It's likewise easy to pick up on John's hero's arc, but who would have guessed that would involve turning John into some kind of zombie? The show gave John pretty much a free pass on his resurrections, but the books certainly will not. John of the Undead will have issues to deal with, like all other undead characters in the story. We don't know what horrors will be involved in bringing him back. Will involve the burning of Shireen, or perhaps Ghost? We know enough by now to expect some level of horror when John rises from the dead. Dun, dun, dun. <gasps> so today we will be considering some of the more horrific possibilities regarding one of the oldest mysteries in the books. What is hidden in the crypts beneath Winterfell? You know what? It's going to be impossible for me to do this in a normal tone of voice with this beard. I just <laughs> I have to speak in a slightly more grandiose tone. It's I just, magnificent. I just don't know. I've got these snowy locks and... Uh, Yes, anyways, uh, so we will consider the more horrific possibilities regarding one of the oldest possibilities in the books. What is hidden in the crypts beneath Winterfell? It may be something a deal worse than Rhaegar's harp or bridal cloak. Or Lyanna's bridal cloak, I guess. It would be. 
more terrifying even than a dragon, though we will discuss that possibility. No, we're thinking of all those dead kings of winter and the increasing profile of zombies in the story. After all, if you put a giant wall made of ice in your story, it must come down. And if you keep showing us a crypt full of dead Starks and statues that seem to watch and wake and stir, maybe those dead kings aren't going to stay dead. Here we have a quote from A Dance with Dragons, John 7. Last night he dreamt the Winterfell dream again. He was wandering the empty castle, searching for his father, descending into the crypts. Only this time the dream had gone further than before. In the dark, he'd heard the scrape of stone on stone. When he turned, he saw that the vaults were opening one after the other. As the dead kings came stumbling from their cold black graves, John had woken in pitch dark, his heart hammering. Even when ghosts left up onto the bed to nuzzle at his face, he could not shake his deep sense of terror. But probably not, right? I mean, that would be pretty crazy if any of the dead people in the crypts rose, let alone a whole bunch of them. Perhaps this is more an existential stare, terror John feels here. Perhaps it's simply foreshadowing of John's own imminent resurrection, imminent in the book canon, that is, where we last left John bleeding out in the snow and calling out to ghost. Yes, there hasn't been a lot of serious thought given to the idea of the Stark Dead Rising because it just seems a little far-fetched, admittedly, for George Martin's low fantasy series that he's written. But what if we shouldn't be so quick to dismiss it? After all, there are an awful lot of scenes where those statues are described in lifelike terms, beyond John's dream of the Kings of Winter emerging from their graves that we just read. You may be surprised by how many times it's there. I mean, it actually happens every time they go into the crypts, anytime anyone goes into the crypts. And we'll start with the very first time people go into the crypts in our first section, which is called The Stone Kings Are Watching. Dun, dun, dun. Ned and Bobby wake the dead. So it starts right in the second Winterfell chapter of A Game of Thrones when the lovable Stark family receives King Robert Baratheon and their rolling nest, or and the rolling nest of intrigue, incest, and child murder that is House Lannister. Robert barely climbs off his horse before asking to visit Lyanna's statue in the crypts. Before they even start their descent, the dead Starks in the crypts are spoken of as being alive, as Cerishi protests Robert going straight for the crypts by sarcastically saying, the dead would wait, as if they are sentient entities. At the very least, we can say their presence is felt even outside the crypts. As soon as they set foot in the crypts, the barrage of walking dead symbolism begins. From Game of Thrones, Eddard 1, or I think it's 2. He led the way between the pillars, and Robert followed wordlessly, shivering in the subterranean chill. It was always cold down here. Their footsteps rang off the stones and echoed in the vault overhead as they walked among the dead of House Stark. The lords of Winterfell watched them pass. Their likenesses were carved into the stones that sealed the tombs. In long rows they sat, blind eyes staring out into eternal darkness, while great stone direwolves curled around their feet, the shifting shadows made the stone figures seem to stir as the living passed by. By ancient custom, an iron longsword had been laid across the lap of each who had been Lord of Winterfell to keep the vengeful spirits in their crypts. The oldest had long rusted away to nothing, leaving only a few red stains where the metal had rested on stone. Ned wondered if that meant those ghosts were free to row the castle now, he hoped not. The first lords of Winterfell had been men as hard as the land they ruled. In the centuries before the dragon lords came over the sea, they had sworn allegiance to no man, styling themselves the king in the north. All right, well, that's pretty thick 
First, the statues are watching them pass. Their blind eyes are staring out into eternal darkness. How gothy of you, George. (laughs) And we were introduced to a motif that we'll see again in the future. The shifting shadows cast by a lantern, making the stone figures seeming to stir. The second paragraph openly speaks of the vengeful spirits and ghosts roaming the castle. Not exactly what you'd call subtle. It's also a good general description of the Stone Kings of Winter, and we'll discuss the swords across their laps in a bit. But first, (laughs) we have to blow the Super Chat horn for Sanrixian, who sent us a $5 Super Chat. Thank you, Sanrixian. What a nice person. Proceed, Maester of Magic. (laughs) As the scene continues, the suggestion of the statues doing lifelight things or coming to life continues. It says that Lord Rickard Stark's statue sat with quiet dignity, stone fingers holding tight to the sword across his lap. And then we get this bit with Robert at Lyanna's statue. She was more beautiful than that, the king said after a silence. His eyes lingered on Lyanna's face as if he could will her back to life. Whoa there, Mr. Necromancer. (laughs) Hey, I mean, you know. He's up there, guy. (laughs) A moment later, uh, we get this line, and it says, The king touched her cheek his fingers brushing across the rough stone as gently as if it were living flesh. Waking Lyanna's from stone. Ned actually dreams of Lyanna's statue weeping blood, too, as you probably remember. And after Ned and Robert move on from Lyanna's statue, we see the blind eyes watching language again, as it says, blind stone eyes seem to follow them as they passed. A moment later, Robert tells the infamous, the king eats and the hand takes the shit joke, which is followed by this line. He threw back his head and roared his laughter. The echoes rang through the darkness, and all around them the dead of Winterfell seemed to watch with cold and disapproving eyes. That is followed by Robert offering Ned the position of Hand of the King, and the chapter closes with this haunting paragraph. For a moment, Eddard Stark was filled with a terrible sense of foreboding. This was his place, here in the north. He looked at the stone figures all around them, breathed deep in the chill silence of the crypt. He could feel the eyes of the dead. They were all listening, he knew, and winter was coming. Approximately 90% of this chapter occurs in the crypts, and the narrative is saturated with the idea of the Stone Kings being alive or coming to life all the way through. You could almost say that this chapter is more or less dedicated to the notion of dead Starks coming to life. It seems a bit macabre, but then again, we're talking about a family that lets their kids play around in ancient tombs and later on have a pattern of beating death. There you go. Run along and play in the crypts, little ones. Mommy's busy. <laughs> so uh, then we have the famous conversation about the kings under the snow, Ned, which actually occurs as Ned and Robert make their way into the crypts. Robert's lines here are generally taken as a reference to John's royal lineage through Rhaegar, and it almost certainly is. But let's read it again and think about the Winterfell dead rising. Go ahead and read this one, Matt. Robert snorted. Bogs and forests and fields, and scarcely a decent inn north of the Neck. I've never seen such a vast emptiness. Where are all your people? Likely they were too shy to come out, Ned jested. He could feel the chill coming up the stairs, a cold breath from deep within the earth. Kings are a rare sight in the north. Robert snorted. More likely they were hiding under the snow. Snow, Ned! The king put one hand on the wall to steady himself as they descended. So Robert's jesting that Ned's people are hiding under the snow. But who do we know that hides under the snow? Invisible during the day. Why, the whites, of course. Such as in this scene with cold hands and Bran in A Dance with the Dragons. 
Something had a hold of his leg. For half a heartbeat, Bran thought maybe a root had gotten tangled around his ankle until the root moved. A hand he saw as the rest of the white came bursting from beneath the snow. And then a moment later, it says, all around him, the whites were rising from beneath the snow. So when Robert jokes about Ned's people, the king of winter's people, hiding beneath the snow, well, it could be read as implying the king of winter's people are whites who hide under the snow. As it happens, the servants of the kings of winter are indeed close at hand. Bran felt all cold inside. She lost her wolf, he said weakly, remembering the day when four of his father's guardsmen had returned from the south with ladies' bones. Summer and Grey Wind and Shaggy Dog had begun to howl before they crossed the drawbridge, in voices drawn and desolate. Beneath the shadow of the first keep was an ancient lichyard, its headstones spotted with pale lichen, where the old kings of winter had laid their faithful servants. It was there they buried Lady, while her brother stalked between the graves like restless shadows. The crypts are huge, said to be larger than Winterfell itself, but the entrance is extremely close to the first keep. That's what I mean by conveniently close at hand. The cold and faithful servants of the Kings of Winter are, are right there under the snow waiting for, I don't know, the horn that wakes the sleepers or something? An invasion of the others? Who knows? It's probably nothing. Wouldn't worry about it. No, definitely not. Um, but I can't help but notice that uh, that line about wolves stalking between the graves like restless shadows. All Starks are wolves in a sense, and a wolf shadows prowling a graveyard kind of implies, well vengeful, restless ghosts of dead Starks, such as Ned was speaking of down in the crypts. So that's it for that chapter, and it really sets the tone for every other scene inside the crypts, all of which build on the language and themes we've seen expressed there so far. There are four scenes in the crypts in total, plus one flashback to a scene in the crypts. This one with Ned and Robert. The scene where Rickon hides in the crypts after Ned's death and Shaggy bites Maester Lewin and tussles with Summer. Then there's Osha, Bran, Rickon, Hodor, Jojen, and Mira hiding in the crypts when Ramsay sacks Winterfell. And the scene in A Dance with Dragons where Lady Barbary Dustin makes Theon show her the entrance of the crypts, followed by Lady Babs discussing Brandon Stark and how she'll never let Ned's bones reach Winterfell. And then finally we have Arya remembering a childhood scene in the crypts with all the Stark children where John pretended to be a ghost and leapt out of one of the tombs. In addition to those five, Ned and John also dream of being in the crypts, and every single time, George R. R. Martin seems to be asking us, Just how dead are these kings of winter, really? Next section, Shifting Shadows and Shadow Wolves. Going in order, we have a scene with Maester Lewin and the Fighting Wolves, which begins with Bran insisting he dreamt of seeing his father's ghost down in the crypts, a dream which Rickon turns out to have had that night as well, this being the day after Lord Eddard was killed. The relevant part of the scene is Shaggy Dog leaping from the tomb as Lewin shoves a torch in there to prove nobody is there. Lord Eddard's tomb, for when his time comes, Maester Lewin said. Is this where you saw your father in your dream, Bran? Yes, the memory made him shiver. He looked around the vault uneasily, the hairs on the back of his neck bristling. Had he heard a noise? Was there someone here? Maester Lewin stepped towards the open sepulchre, torch in hand. As you see, he's not here, nor will he be for many a year. Dreams are only dreams, child. He thrust his arm into the blackness inside the tomb, as into the mouth of some great beast. Do you see? It's quite empty. The darkness sprang at him, snarling. Bran saw eyes like green fire, a flash of teeth, 
fur as black as the pit around them. Maester Lewin yelled and threw up his hands. The torch went flying from his fingers, caromed off the stone face of Brandon Stark and tumbled to the statue's feet, the flames licking up his legs. In the drunken, shifting torchlight, they saw Lewin struggling with the direwolf, beating at his muzzle with one hand while the jaws closed on the other. And summer came, shooting from the dimness behind them, a leaping shadow. He slammed into Shaggy Dog and knocked him back, and the two direwolves rolled over in a tangle of gray and black fur, snapping and biting at each other, while Maester Lewin struggled to his knees, his arm torn and bloody. Osha propped Bran up against Lord Rickard's stone wolf as she hurried to assist the maester. In the light of the guttering torch, shadow wolves, 20 feet tall, fought on the wall and the roof. So Maester Lewin is trying to say, look, Ned's not here in his tomb, but then think about what actually is there, a shadow wolf. To wit, both wolves create the shadow wolves on the wall, Summer is called a leaping shadow, and Shaggy's attack is described as the darkness leaping at poor Maester Lewin. Boo! I'm a dire wolf. Now, of course, the point is that just as with the scene in the Lichyard, the idea of a shadow wolf could be interpreted as implying the ghost of a Stark or a resurrected Stark, especially when it's leaping out of the tomb of a Stark who's just recently died. Even the mouth of Ned's tomb is described as the mouth of some great beast, which just sort of generally implies the idea of some sort of monstrous thing lurking down here, or that a monstrous mouth waits to be fed by the bodies of dead Starks. Brandon pie instead of Jojen pie, perhaps? Ugh, that wouldn't taste very good. Next, we have Bran and company hiding in the crypts after escaping from Theon, during which time they also miss out on Ramsay taking Winterfell from Theon and burning it. While they hide in the darkness, Bran is learning to reach out to Summer in a controlled way in order to see whether or not it's safe to come out. After Bran comes back from using Wolfcam and reports to everyone in the pitch darkness of the crypts, we have this spooky passage. Bran heard fingers fumbling at leather, followed by the sound of steel on flint. Then again, a spark flew, caught. Osha blew softly. A long, pale flame awoke, stretching upward like a girl on her toes. Osha's face floated above it. She touched the flame with the head of a torch. Bran had to squint as the pitch began to burn, filling the world with orange glare. The light woke Rickon, who sat up yawning. When the shadows moved, it looked for an instant as if the dead were rising as well. Lyanna and Brandon, Lord Rickard Stark, their father, Lord Edwile, his father, Lord Willem and his brother Artos the Implacable, Lord Donner and Lord Baron and Lord Rodwell, one-eyed Lord Jonal, Lord Barth, Lord Brandon and Lord Cregan, who had fought the Dragon Knight. On their stone chairs, they sat with stone wolves at their feet. This was where they came when the warmth had seeped out of their bodies. This was the dark hall of the dead, where the living feared to tread. Earlier in the scene, when Ned and Robert were down in the crypts, we had the line, the shifting shadows made the stone figures seem to stir as the living passed by. And now we get a slightly more explicit version of that with the line, when the shadows moved, it looked for an instant as if the dead were rising. Even better, we have exactly 13 Stark dead named here. And of course, 13 is an important number in Northern lore because the last hero was said to have had 12 companions and because the Night's King was said to be the 13th Lord Commander of the Night's Watch. Also, consider what Bran is doing here in this scene, just in general. He's a Stark Greenseer sitting uh, next to one of the tombs inside the crypts, controlling a shadow wolf that runs around in the real world amidst a war zone. While Bran does this, shadows in the crypts make the dead appear to rise. 
Now, Bran himself isn't dead, but he's sitting next to the tomb like a dead Stark. So could this be a clue about dead Starks being able to rise from the dead or project their spirits into the world somehow, becoming shadow wolf people in some sense? I mean, it's probably a silly idea, but Martin keeps implying it for whatever reason, so... And we get another helping of the same sort of talk when Theon and Barbary Dustin go down there in a dance with dragons. First, we have this passage. Lady Dustin's sergeant raised the lantern. Shadows slid and shifted, a small light in a great darkness. Theon had never felt comfortable in the crypts. He could feel the stone kings staring down at him with their stone eyes. Stone fingers curled around the hilts of their rusted longswords. None had any love for Ironborn. A familiar sense of dread filled him. And a moment later, it's mentioned again. Their footsteps echoed through the vault as they made their way beneath the rows of pillars. The stone eyes of the dead men seemed to follow them, and the eyes of their stone direwolves as well. So now we've got stone wolves watching, as well as the stone kinks. I mean, this could be really bad if someone figures out how to wake the stone wolves as well. They might be hard to kill. Very well could be. There's also the implication of walking Stark ghosts, as Barbary notices that a few of the Stone Kings are missing their longswords. That king is missing his sword, Lady Dustin observed. It was true. Theon did not recall which king it was, but the longsword he should have held was gone. Streaks of rust remained to show where it had been. The sight disquieted him. He had always heard that the iron in the sword kept the spirits of the dead locked within their tombs. If a sword was missing... There are ghosts in Winterfell, and I am one of them. We'll discuss the meaning of the longswords in a bit, but the main thing to notice for now is the implication of the Stark dead being locked in their tombs, but able to roam free if proper protections are not in place. Theon also considers himself to be a walking ghost, and during this conversation, Barbary correctly accuses Theon of wanting to be a Stark. Theon also notices his namesake, the King of the North known as Theon Stark, the Hungry Wolf further implying Theon as an honorary Stark or symbolic Stark. And this theme is carried on for all of his Dance with Dragons chapters. The point is that he's representing a ghostly Stark, one of the ghosts in Winterfell, in parallel to the Stark ghost he imagines might be roaming free. The last actual scene in the crypts is Arya's recollection of a childhood event which comes to us in A Game of Thrones. And you guys probably remember this. Arya's trying to escape King's Landing through the underground passages after Ned's been arrested and the Stark household guards slaughtered by the Lannisters. Bastard Lannisters. Boo. She's in the chamber with the drain. Yeah, boo, hiss. <laughs> She's in the chamber with the dragon skulls on the walls, and she draws strength from this childhood memory of the Winterfell Crypts. Fear cuts deeper than swords, the quiet voice inside her whispered. Suddenly Arya remembered the crypts at Winterfell. They were a lot scarier than this place, she told herself. She had been just a little girl the first time she saw them. Her brother Rob had taken them down, her and Sansa and baby Bran, who had been no bigger than Rickon was now. They'd only had one candle between them, and Bran's eyes had gotten as big as saucers as he stared at the stone faces of the kings of winter, with their wolves at their feet and their iron swords across their laps. Rob took them all the way down to the end, past Grandfather and Brandon and Lyanna, to show them their own tombs. Sansa kept looking at the stubby little candle, anxious it might go out. Old Nan had told her there were spiders down here and rats as big as dogs. Rob smiled when she said that. There are worse things than spiders and rats, he whispered. This is where the dead walk. That was when they had heard the sound, low and deep and shivery. Baby Bran had clutched at Arya's hand. When the spirit stepped out of the open tomb, 
pale white and moaning for blood. Sansa ran shrieking for the stairs, and Bran wrapped himself around Rob's legs, sobbing. Arya stood her ground and gave the spirit a punch. It was only John, covered with flour. You stupid, she told him. You scared the baby. But John and Rob just laughed and laughed, and pretty soon Bran and Arya were laughing too. The memory made Arya smile. And after that, the darkness held no more terrors for her. The stable boy was dead. She killed him. And if he jumped out at her, she'd kill him again. She was going home. Everything would be better when she was home again and safe behind Winterfell's gray granite walls. All right. So this scene presented to us in Arya's inner monologue as she bravely and humorously turns a corner in her character arc is certainly quite memorable. It's almost easy to miss the suggestive wording here. John is a white ghost playing the role of a dead Stark emerging from the crypts. Given that most people expect John's soul to reside in his wolf ghost until his body can be resurrected in some manner, this scene certainly reads as a foreshadowing of John's resurrection through ghost. Arya giving John a punch is actually uh, foreshadows John's stabbing as well, where the line was, Then Bowen Marsh stood there before him, tears running down his cheeks. For the watch, he punched John in the belly. When he pulled his hand away, the dagger stayed where he had buried it. That's pretty cool, right? Arya punches him uh, when he's a dead spirit, and John is punched when he's murdered. So well, this is one of those examples of uh, Martin using precise language to tie scenes together across five books and however many years, which always impresses me. Always noteworthy, uh, also noteworthy, rather, is the line in Arya's scene about how she'd already killed the stable boy and about how if the stable boy jumped out at her, she'd just kill him again. That kind of suggests Arya fighting the undead killing people who were already dead, if you will, which could well end up being more foreshadowing by the time that the story is done. Now we consider John emerging from the tomb covered in flour in the context of our study today. It's clear that once again, the idea of dead Starks from inside the crypts coming back to life or unlife is strongly expressed when we have a scene in the crypts. You basically cannot go down there without encountering idea of the dead walking. The dreams Ned and John have of the crypts are no better, of course. You know the stone kids aren't sitting still in those dreams either. That is right. Uh, let's see. He was walking through the crypts beneath Winterfell as he had walked a thousand times before. The kings of winter, such as myself, passed, uh, watched him pass with eyes of ice and the direwolves at their feet turned their great stone heads and snarled. Last of all, he came to the tomb where his father slept with Brandon and Lyanna beside him. Promise me, Ned. Lyanna's statue whispered. She wore a garland of pale blue roses, and her eyes wept blood. You kind of expect dreams to be figurative and kind of fantastical, but once again, it fits the theme. Probably most noble here, besides Lyanna's statue talking and weeping, are the stone kings having their eyes of ice. It really makes you think of the blue star-eyed whites and others, or at least cold, undead people. We already quoted John's most terrifying dream in the crypts. That was the one where uh, the dead kings came stumbling from their cold black graves and John woke in terror. Now, what if that dream is actually more literal than we all assume? That's kind of the question that we're asking here. Mm -hmm. With quotes like these, it's easy to write them off because they are in the spooky, dark, underground crypts of Winterfell. After all, we get a very similar description and feeling from an unexpected place. Daenerys Targaryen when she's in Vase Dothrak, as she's writing down a thoroughfare line with the statues of the gods of the people the Dothraki have conquered. Beyond the horse gate, plundered gods and stolen heroes loom to either side of them. The forgotten deities of dead cities brandished their broken thunderbolts at the sky as Dany rode her silver past their feet. 
Stone kings looked down on her from their thrones, their faces chipped and stained, even their names lost in the mists of time. It's not quite as vivid in terms of suggesting the statues walking from the dead like we get in the Winterfell crypts, but they are watching. It's interesting they're called stone kings too, as that is the description used for the statues of the kings of winter. The dragon skulls in the dark chamber beneath King's Landing also give us a more vivid suggestion of inanimate things, the skulls this time instead of statues, uh, which tend to watch and seem alive in the few scenes that we get with them. Arya even perceives the dragon as nipping at her clothes. So it's pretty, pretty much a similar deal. Uh, they seem to follow the people as they walk by, and they're personified as being alive. The thing is, though, that nobody expects the dragon skulls to come to life down there. So, you know, maybe it's just a widespread feeling across characters that stone statues and dragon skulls in odd places give them the willies. You almost expect a Scooby-Doo ghost to pop out with how menacing these descriptions in the Winterfell crypts can be. And of course, as we saw, John Erdy did that as a prank. However, across so many characters and differences in ages, it's a pattern too well established for savvy readers to ignore. In your mind, George is planting and carefully nurturing the idea that stone statues, particularly those in Winterfell, are dormant or patient. We see just that sort of patience from the undead corpses of Jafer, Flowers, and Othor, the slain rangers who attacked John at Castle Black. Dywin sucked at his wooden teeth. Might be they didn't die here. Might be someone brought him and left him for us. A warning is like... The old forester peered down suspiciously. And might be I'm a fool, but I don't know that Othor never had no blue eyes afore. Sir Jeremy looked startled. Neither did Flowers, he blurted, turning to stare at the dead men. Death and cold are patient and watching. The whites of Jather and Othor waited until the most opportune moment for striking at the Night's Watch. What might the Stone Kings be waiting for? Given the similar language of blue, icy, blind eyes staring forwards and behavior ascribed with the statues, it seems that George wants you looking at these statues and wondering, could they? Could these dead kings of winter spirits rise? Next section is called Everyone Knew What That Meant. So not only are we as readers supposed to wonder if these statues can spring into action, we're also being shown that they have a personality, and would be, shall we say, less than friendly if they could move. With the exception of Lyanna Stark's statue, each stone figure is sitting in the exact same way. I am grateful for your service, sisters, Catalan said, but I must lay another task upon you. Lord Eddard was a Stark, and his bones must be laid to rest beneath Winterfell. They will make a statue of him, a stone likeness that will sit in the dark with a direwolf at its feet and a sword across his knees. This is the Dark Hall of the Dead, and lining the walls are the stone kings of winter, sitting in their cold thrones with stern visages, a dire wolf at their feet and a bare sword laying across their laps. It's kind of unusual if you think of most statues in graveyards and mortuaries from modern times, as they are all making a silent threat against their visitors, a dire wolf to leap up and snap at your throat, and a bared sword across their lap. The dire wolf is obvious, the sword is less so. Lest we linger in doubt, George spells it out for us in this scene in a Game of Thrones when Tyrion comes through Winterfell on his way back from the wall. Any man of the Night's Watch is welcome here at Winterfell for as long as he wishes to stay, Rob was saying with the voice of Rob the Lord. His sword was across his knees, the steel bear for all the world to see. Even Bran knew what it meant to greet a guest with an unsheathed sword. 
Any man of the Night's Watch, the dwarf repeated, but not me. Do I take your meaning, boy? Even Bran knows what that means, and it's apparent from the scene. It's a threat and a denial of guest right. Rob uses this posture again in A Clash of Kings. When the guards brought in the captive, Rob called for his sword. Olivar Frey offered it up, hilt first, and her son drew the blade and laid it bare across his knees, a threat plain for all to see. Your grace, here is the man you asked for, announced Sir Robin Rygar, captain of the Tully House Guard. Kneel before the king, Lannister, Theon Greyjoy shouted. Sir Robin forced the prisoner to his knees. Rise, Sir Cleos. Her son's voice was not as icy as his father's would have been, but he did not sound a boy of fifteen either. War had made a man of him before his time. Morning light glimmered faintly across the edge of the steel across his knees. So now Rob also speaks of sheathing his sword in this bit as an analogy for agreeing to terms to end the war. So in this scene, his bared sword is also part declaration of ongoing war. It's basically the same meaning, just sort of times a thousand, if you will. Mm. What's odd about the statues then is that they are showing the same menace and aggression that Rob shows his enemies. Surely not every Stark throughout history was a hard, angry lord threatening all that crossed their paths. Bran the shipwright was a dreamer who sailed off into the sunset sea chasing his dream, for example. And Bran is basically a sweet boy at heart. And the bare sword example is usually on a case-by-case basis, as in Rob chose that his sword should be bare against Tyrion Lannister in specific hostility against him. Right, so Jamie Lannister, as it happens, also appropriates this posture after killing Mad King Aerys, if you recall. And uh, Eddard Stark found him in the Iron Throne, like so. For a moment, he was tempted, until he glanced down again at the body on the floor and its spreading pool of blood. His blood is in both of them, he thought. Proclaim who you bloody well like, he told Craycall. Then he climbed the Iron Throne and seated himself with his sword across his knees to see who would come to claim the kingdom. As it happened, it had been Eddard Stark. As you can see, this body language is not owned by House Stark. It's generally understood for what it is, an active challenge against whoever comes across you. And yet, the stone kings of winter in the crypts are also in this position. Why? These are the crypts of House Stark. The only people who come down here are, well, members of House Stark. And yet, everywhere you look, there's a king showing you his sword. The spirits of the kings of winter are also called vengeful in Eddard's quote above. So they're actively hostile against visitors who are mostly Starks. I mean, it'd be one thing if these statues were out in the open surrounding the castle or acting as gargoyles for intimidation. Why would they set up their own crypts and family members like this, hostile and vengeful? If you wanted to make a statue to honor dad, why wouldn't you just make one where he's looking... I mean, why would you make one where he's looking pissed off and hostile? It's kind of a strange way to honor your ancestors, right? For sure. You don't see those in graveyards today. Somebody not just like often. shaking their fist at people. No, not at that's, all. That's basically what it is. It's like they're flexing. It's very strange. I'm angry. <laughs> <laughs> the angry king of winter. One explanation is that the statues are meant to frighten intruders. Let them know that they're not welcome among the kings of winter and their family. That they continue protecting their family long after they have left this world. This is the impression that John gets sometimes, saying that he's not a Stark and that isn't his place. This doesn't make a huge amount of logical sense, though, as nothing else about the crypt seems designed to protect from intruders. They are protected by elaborate defenses, guards, secret entrances, or Indiana Jones-style booby traps and large rocks rolling down places. If this was a place they really didn't want people to get into, you'd think the crypts would be protected by something more than angry statues with intimidating body language. 
I mean, the only reason Lady Barbary Dustin has a hard time finding entrance in A Dance with Dragons is because the entrance has been covered in snow. That's right. And another explanation is that these statues protect the bones and bodies hidden behind them. So maybe that's it. Uh, As we are all acutely aware, the dead are able to rise in the world that George has created. It's not only the cold whites raised by the others. We've also seen fire undead, Kyburn undead, if you will, and whatever cold hands is, perhaps a human resurrected by the children of the forest. The placement of enormous angry stone statues in front of tombs may be a form of anti-grave robbing technology, if you will, that the Starks were forced to enact after the last long night, one which they may have forgotten the meaning of. Perhaps the ancient Starks believed that these statues would protect their dead from being raised as whites. However, if this were the case, then you wouldn't need the statues to be angry and vengeful. Large rocks or statues that actually honor the dead would work just as well as threatening ones. Frowns aren't really that effective against the others, you know? (laughs) Yes, they hate the touch of iron and fire and very stern looks. Oh no, I'm being denied guest right. I can't raise this guy. You can just hear them (laughs) saying... There's also the possibility that the purpose of the swords is just what Ned and Theon think it is, to keep the vengeful spirits from walking the face of the earth. Ned references the swords in his opening chapter, hinting that the swords keep the spirits in their tombs. He worries, a bit dramatically, when you first read it, that the kings whose swords have gone to rust might now be roaming the crypts in the castle itself. Theon has the same thought with Lady Barbary when he notices the missing swords that Bran and a small group steal from the crypts in their escape. Notably from Rickard Stark, Ned Stark, his brother Brandon Stark, and a fourth unknown statue, including Lyanna, who never received a sword. This makes for quite a lot of spirits that could be roaming free. When Bran originally takes the swords, Ned's words ring in his ears. Osha carried her long oaken spear in one hand and the torch in another. A naked sword hung down her back one of the last to bear Micken's mark. He had forged it from Lord Eddard's tomb to keep his ghost at rest. That was from A Clash of Kings, and then this next one is from A Dance with Dragons. Uh, oh, we already read this one. That king is missing his sword. It's that one with Lady Barbara Dustin. And, uh, but the, I guess the key line is, he had always heard that the iron in the sword kept the spirits of the dead locked within the tombs, and if a sword was missing, dot, dot, dot. So that's uh, three times that George has called our attention to the idea that the swords keeping the spirits, or that the swords are keeping the spirits inside. This could relate back to the idea of resurrection being used against the corpses, of course, and that somehow the Starks believe there's a ritual or spell that, keep, that these blades keep the dead safely dormant inside their tombs. It's a surprisingly practical fear that is dressed up in superstition from the perspective of the characters who think about it, but it also seems like a clever way for our clever author to insert yet more foreshadowing of the Kings of Winter Rising disguised as unconfirmed rumors and ghost stories. But let's think about this for a moment. The best way to prevent your dead from rising is to burn the corpses, as the wildlings do. Iron swords don't seem to have any magic properties that we know of. Though old Nan speaks of the others hating the touch of iron, we've seen that iron shatters against their icy blades with Waymar Royce. It would make more sense to give them dragonglass knives. But unless those statues can swing the knives, it still doesn't really do that much. (laughs) Right, exactly. So as for these swords keeping the spirits inside, it really seems like mostly superstition in all likelihood. We've seen magical barriers which prevent shadows from passing, but they usually aren't made of iron. Um, Now, if there are such warding spells woven into the crypts, 
I'm not really sure why they would need to be dependent on the swords. I mean, we've seen like Storm's End and the Wall and uh, Blood Raven's Cave that are warded, but it's they don't really need like an artifact. It's just some sort of magical ward that exists there, and I guess we don't really know how that works. But no, we do not. It's very mysterious. A final explanation, and perhaps the most intriguing one for us is that the statues are not meant primarily at keeping anyone out for the reasons above. However, they serve at keeping something inside. They are putting visitors on guard that there is danger beyond, and the statues keep watch. A monster, a villain, an ancient evil that the kings of winter trapped and stand guard over forever. And just real quick, uh, San Rixian in the chat popped in. She said that historically graves were carved with skulls to indicate that something dangerous was buried inside. Oh. And that's kind of exactly what we're talking about. So our that's next section. Yeah. Yes, very nice. It fits right in. That's why, that's why I give the shout out there. So uh, next section is called A Maze with a Monster. I just wanted to call out real fast a, a comment from Monica Lamos who says, isn't the Iron Legend a fey thing in real life? That may be where George is drawing it from, from actual um, myths in the real world. Yeah, I think he's probably, probably a reference to that at least, yeah. It's a very good idea there. Okay, so a maze with a monster. A monster, like a snark or a grumpkin? I hear you thinking. However, there are strong narrative and historical reasons to believe that the crypts are not just an elaborate burial ground, but a potential prison or maze, like the myths of old. First comes the physical structure of the crypts themselves. It's not just one long floor of tombs, nor small clusters from different areas and chambers, you know, made custom for the lords. The entire crypt layout, as far as we know, is the same throughout. And there are multiple levels, one on top of the other, as a single consistent structure, with identical rows of stone kings enthroned behind, beneath arches, marching off into the gloom. The vault was cavernous, longer than Winterfell itself, and John had told him once that there were other levels underneath, vaults even deeper and darker, where the older kings were buried. And then there's the collapse section, the lowest, most ancient part of the tomb, have apparently collapsed over time. The steps go further down, observed Lady Dustin. There are lower levels, older. The lowest level is partly collapsed, I hear. I've never been down there. He pushed the door open and led them out into a long vaulted tunnel where mighty granite pillars marched two by two into blackness. Oh, so mysterious. Ooh. That lowest level, oh, it's tantalizing. This is the kind <laughs> of thing that arouses and torments any avid fantasy reader. Nobody knows what's down in the lowest level. Come on. We got to know. <laughs> uh, you know what they say about curiosity? The crypts are also ancient. Possibly the structure of the entire castle is built around. It's a like reason why the hills were not leveled when Winterfell was built, something which our attention is called to in the world of ice and fire. Their entrance is very close to the first keep, the oldest building in the castle, which has become abandoned in recent years. Not unlike the way the Night's Watch have abandoned the Night Fort. The first keep sits near the Lich Yard, the burial ground for the servants of the Starks and Winterfell that we talked about earlier. The crypts for the family themselves, and curiously, the Godswood. It appears the crypts extend under the first keep in the Godswood, showing us the structure of the fortress when it was founded. One large tower or keep on one side, a Godswood with the Great Weirwood as we know it on the other side, and sitting in between a massive underground cavern full of tombs. It appears that the crypt entrance sits directly between them like the root structure of a combined children and human home. Indeed. This is one of the 
One of my favorite observations that you made about this, by the way. Mm. So Winterfell is described in language that conjures to mind the ancient Minoan or Greek myths of the Minotaurs trapped in the labyrinth, such as in Bran's second chapter in A Game of Thrones. To a boy, Winterfell was a great stone labyrinth of walls and towers and courtyards and tunnels spreading out in all directions. In the older parts of the castle, the halls slanted up and down so you couldn't even be sure what floor you were on. The place had grown over the centuries like some monstrous stone tree. Remember that part? Maester Lewin told him once, and its branches were gnarled and thick and twisted. Its roots sunk deep into the earth. It's a great quote. A stone tree and a labyrinth. Then in a Theon chapter in Winterfell during a dance with dragons, when the snow is piled up many feet in the courtyard, it says... White walls rose to either side as he and Rowan made their way to the godswood. The paths between keep and tower and hall had turned into a maze of icy trenches, shoveled out hourly to keep them clear. It was easy to get lost in that frozen labyrinth, but Theon Greyjoy knew every twist and turning. In addition to these descriptions, we know that below the ground, the entire structure is like an enormous labyrinth. There are generally two uses for labyrinths in real-life ancient cultures. One is to keep something trapped inside, confused, and unable to leave, like the infamous Minotaur forever plodding through the maze. The second use is as a trap or purification. You see these second types as head mages or stone mazes, the pa- or in actually the patterns on old Christian cathedral floors. People are meant to walk these mazes, and as they go through... Their evil spirits clinging to them are lost and left behind like minotaurs while the faithful continue on their way inside. Because as everyone knows, evil spirits are notoriously bad at mazes. They are really (laughs) tough. You ever been to a corn maze? Nobody can solve those. They are tough. Yeah, I, I always go for that on the, when I go to the Ren Fair, which I do obviously go to Ren Fairs. Look at my costume. You know. I like hanging out with carny folk. Anyway, this isn't an idea constrained to Winterfell, however, or some colorful word choice for describing the general structure. Mazes and labyrinths are well established in the myths and the reality of George's world, as well as external mythology. The one you might think of off the top of your head might be the labyrinth, so-called labyrinth in the Great Pyramid of Marine, where Danny keeps her monsters, which are the dragons, well hidden. Quentin Martell recalls how difficult it is to navigate. Beyond the stables, the ground level of the Great Pyramid became a labyrinth, But Quentin Martell had been through here with the queen and remembered the way. Under three huge brick arches they went, then down a steep stone ramp into the depths, through the dungeons and torture chambers, and past a pair of deep stone cisterns. Their footsteps echoed hollowly off the walls. That's a tough one. The butcher's cart rumbling behind them. The big man snatched a torch down from the wall sconce to lead the way. Here the comparison with the Minotaur of Crete is made obvious. George is clearly aware of the story and uses specific language so that the reader is made aware that he's playing with the idea of a monster at the center. Danny, acting as Minoans, trapped her dragons or Minotaurs deep in the labyrinth they cannot escape from. Quentin is acting as Theseus's froggy stand-in. And you know, on rereading this bit, I actually noticed that Arch, who is the big man that snatched up the torch to lead the way in this scene, is even wearing a brass bull's mask. Now, I usually find that George puts little signposts like this in when he wants us to follow the references to myth that he's using. So Danny's dragons are the real monster in the labyrinth, but he slaps a bull mask on Arch and uses the word labyrinth just to make sure we know what the subject matter is, which is, of course, the Minotaur and the labyrinth. Mm-hmm. The next place called Labyrinth is Gorn's Way under the wall that the brothers 
Gendel and Gorn famously navigated, which is called a labyrinth of twisting subterranean caverns. Gendel and his followers eventually became lost down there, and according to a wildling legend, Gendel's children still haunt the underground maids, eager to snatch up the wandering spelunkers. Such a good word. I love spelunkers. This shows us an echo of the Minotaur Labyrinth theme, certainly. And then we have the maze makers of Lorath, who built an elaborate and sprawling underground maze where modern-day Lorath sits, and it's appropriately labeled a labyrinth. We aren't given any hints of monsters, though, just a whole lot of mystery. Even more mysterious are the secret underground stone mazes in the jungles of Lang, or the sacred Isle of Lang, I should say. Holy Isle of Lang, that's what it's called. Uh, That is an island nation in the Jade Sea, and those secret underground stone mazes are, of course, called a labyrinth. We are told that... There are queer ruins in the depths of the island's jungle, massive buildings long and fallen and so overgrown that rubble remains above the surface. But underground, we are told, endless labyrinths of tunnels lead to vast chambers and carved steps descend hundreds of feet into the earth. No man can say who might have built these cities or when. They perhaps remain the only remnant of some vanished people. Dun, dun, dun. (gasps) That is from the world of ice and fire, by the way. So we're also told that those who do go down there come out mad, or they don't come out at all. And, oh yes, mysterious beings called the Old Ones might live down there. So there's that. This does seem like a prototypical labyrinth here. And there's also the hedge maze outside of Highgarden. Which is called a vast, complicated labyrinth of thorns and hedges, maintained for centuries for the pleasure and delight of the castle's occupants and guests, and for defensive purposes, for intruders unfamiliar with the maze cannot easily find their way through its traps and dead ends to the castle gates. What we get from the historical and in-story examples of mazes and labyrinths is that the people use them for two main purposes. The first is defensive. Kind of like Gorn's way in the High Garden maze. High Garden's maze is planned intentionally while Gorn's is not, but both demonstrate the same function. Enemies unfamiliar with the maze become delayed and trapped. A foe that cannot reach you, no matter how strong they are, is no threat at all. The second one is once you have your foe in the maze, it serves as a prison for them as long as they cannot find their way out. Meanwhile, the master of the maze, like Bran perched above Winterfell or Theon, Having memorized the snowy path around Winterfell, they're able to navigate the maze quite easily, like a spider navigating her web. The master of the labyrinth is nimble and knowledgeable, while their opponent, often stronger, stays confused and stuck in place. That's right. For our purposes here, this signals for us that deep in the crypts, perhaps behind the collapsed sections, there may be a monster of some sort lurking. Perhaps one that the Starks trapped long ago and continued to hold in the Winterfell labyrinth. The ancient kings outside their tombs, serving as the guards for the monster attempting escape, or the ancient, I should say the ancient kings outside their tombs may be serving as the guards for the monster, preventing him from attempting escape, and they may be serving as the last line of defense against invaders who may be attempting to set the monster free. Now, it must be said, although the word labyrinth is used to describe the castle of Winterfell, and although we said the crypts are kind of like a labyrinth, it's more of a symbolic way of saying they are like the root zone of the stone tree of Winterfell. The crypts themselves are navigated really easily once you get inside of them. Lady Dustin's struggles at finding the crypt is largely a product of the enormous snowfall that has buried the castle. Although you could see this as symbolically as nature protecting the crypts that the, now that the Starks have fled Winterfell. There you go. So point being, the barriers are likely to be more fantasy-based than physical-based. 
knowing the deep connection between the Starks and the Children of the Forest and their magic, it's also likely that any potential monster that they have trapped would be magical in nature. Recall that Maester Lewin called Winterfell a monstrous stone tree, evoking the weirwoods, monstrous trees, which slowly turn into stone if killed. So the weirwood net is definitely a place where we could conceivably have monsters hiding, and we've even seen Bran become the ghost in Winterfell, quote-unquote, by inhabiting the Winterfell weirwood. So the question is, what sort of monster or evil thing have the Starks kept trapped in their home, and how? What minotaur have they caught? Let's examine some tantalizing possibilities. All right, and this next section shall be called The Enthroned Kings of Winter. Before we go on to this, again, Monica Lamos with a great comment. Uh, they're saying there's a minotaur down there waiting on sacrifices. That is exactly what we're going to be talking about in a little bit. We are drifting and you are catching. You are right there. You are on it. The Starks are sacrificing to the minotaur of their crypts. And Monica's always on it, so that's not a surprise. <laughs> so the uh, first and most obvious potential monster in the crypts would be the dead Starks themselves. This is the most straightforward reading of all the symbolism and imagery that we've covered at the beginning, all of which revolves around the statues watching or waking, and the ghosts of the dead roaming free, or the dead themselves emerging from the crypts, as in the most recent crypt dream that John had. There are a variety of potential resurrection scenarios that we can imagine, but they all start with one question. How exactly would the dead in the crypts rise? All but the most recently deceased would long ago have turned to dust. So, how would this even work? How does this become more than angry ghosts trying to spook people? Whether we're thinking of the others raising the Stark dead to use against the living or of the Stark dead returning to fight for the living, none of these ideas have a leg to stand on, really, unless you can explain how you go about reanimating a pile of dust that used to be a king of winter. No, it uh, doesn't make a lot of sense. It appears we've written a big essay about nothing, Matt. Unless... Unless... Unless there's something really twisted going on. Oh, no. Oh, unless the dead bodies of some or even all the Starks aren't simply placed in empty sepulchers. What if it's something a little more like this? Bran ate with Summer and his pack as a wolf. As a raven, he flew with the murder, circling the hill at sunset, watching for foes, feeling the icy touch of the air. As Hodor, he explored the caves... He found chambers full of bones, shafts that plunged deep into the earth, a place where the skeletons of gigantic bats hung upside down from the ceiling. He even crossed the slender stone bridge that arched over the abyss and discovered more passages and chambers on the far side. One was full of singers, enthroned like Brynden in nests of weirwood roots that wove under and through and around their bodies. Most of them looked dead to him, but as he crossed in front of them, their eyes would open and follow the light of his torch and one of them opened and closed a wrinkled mouth as if he were trying to speak. Hodor, Bran said to him, and he felt the real Hodor stir down in his pit. Seated on his throne of roots in the great cavern, half corpse and half tree, Lord Brynden seemed less a man than some ghastly statue made of twisted wood, old bone, and rotted wool. So we have a ghastly corpse, set, a ghastly corpse statue sitting in a cave. That's very interesting. Perhaps even more intriguing are the rows of enthroned singers who look dead to Bran, but aren't totally dead. It's kind of confusing. I mean, it's weird because the corpse statue Brendan Rivers is repeatedly called the last green seer, but these enthroned singers are almost certainly green seers, or they were. So 
I, and they're not totally dead, but maybe they're too far gone into the weirwood net, too merged with the green seer consciousness to be considered living green seers. Because I mean, if Brendan's the last green seer, it's like basically saying these these guys don't count anymore. So maybe. I don't know. Maybe they're maybe they're technically dead. I mean, here inside Blood Raven's creepy ass cave, the late Jojen Reed starts to give us a clue when he begins educating Bran on what it means to be a green seer, saying, "Those you call children of the forest have eyes as golden as the sun, but once in a great while, one is born amongst them with the eyes as red as blood, or green as the moss on a tree in the heart of the forest. By these signs do the gods mark those they have chosen to receive the gift." The chosen ones are not robust, and their quick years upon the earth are few, for every song must have its balance. But once inside the wood, they linger long indeed. A thousand eyes, a hundred skins, wisdoms deep as the roots of ancient trees. Green seers. He goes on telling Bran that when the singers die, they go into the wood, into leaf and limb and root. And a moment later, he says... Maesters will tell you that the weirwoods are sacred to the old gods. The singers believe they are the old gods. When singers die, they become part of that godhood. So this all seems straightforward. When a green seer begins hooking up to the weirwood net, he creates a link to the collective weirwood consciousness and the dead green seer hive mind, if you will. Until he's dead, he's able to float in between the realm of the living in the weirwood net. Bloodraven, for example, after a long, hard day tutoring Bran Stark, says, I am tired now. The trees are calling me. Leaf tells Bran that most of him has gone into the tree and that he has lived beyond his mortal span, and yet he lingers. For us, for you, for the realms of men, only a little strength remains in that flesh. So here's the big question. What is the deal with these not-quite-dead enthroned singers that Bran sees who apparently don't count as living greenseers? You know, I mean, since Bloodraven is the last one, and, well, I explained that. So it doesn't seem like anyone is really home in there. They respond to light and movement basically the same way that a vegetative Drogo does. One of them sort of opened its mouth a little bit, and that's basically it. So is it possible that maybe they are actually dead in the sense that the souls once inhabiting the bodies have completely merged with the weirwood net, but yet somehow their physical bodies are still being kept alive by the weirwoods? Is this why weirwoods need to drink blood? Is that why, going back thousands of years, first men and Starks have been slitting the throats of sacrificial victims in front of heart trees? Is that why the Starks have a ritual-like habit of cleaning the blood off their ceremonial greatsorts in the pond at the foot of Winterfell's heart tree? I mean, what use does a tree have for human blood? Why? To keep a ripe collection of cadavers nice and fresh, obviously. <laughs> <laughs> no, Bran said, no, don't. But they could not hear him, no more than his father had. The woman grabbed the captive by the hair, hooked the sickle round his throat, and slashed. And through the mist of centuries, the broken boy could only watch as the man's feet drummed against the earth. But as his lifeblood flowed out of him in a red tide, Brandon Stark could taste the blood. What a great quote. It's really good. Now, this is actually not crackpot in the slightest, this idea that we're pitching at you here. I mean, well, it's not too crackpot anyways, because we know for a fact that Blood Raven is sustained by the weirwood tree, not by food and drink. Similarly, the singers who open their eyes for Bran probably aren't fed like acorn paste every day or something. Uh, it seems that their bodies are connected to and maintained by the weirwood roots. So we know this can work. We know that weirwoods do indeed sustain bodies in various states of half-life. 
It's a short and reasonably intuitive leap to suggest that perhaps the blood sacrifice to the weirwoods might be playing a part in all of this. And we really do have to consider the possibility that this phenomena is not limited to Bloodraven's cave. If the weirwoods are keeping the corpses of dead greenseers fresh in one place, they might be doing so in another. Remember how Winterfell was described as a great stone tree. These crypts are root zone, analogous to Bloodraven's cave, where in turn the white weirwoods seem to be like grave worms to Bran, enhancing the parallel. Perhaps the bodies of the older kings of winter and kings of the north, some of whom may have been wargs or occasionally even greenseers, are being kept not alive, but preserved to some extent, waiting for something. If the weirwoods are in the business of keeping the corpses of the dead fresh, if you will, there are basically two possible reasons why. Either they are meant to rise for the last battle, or they have some sort of important part of the, tr- of the hybrid tree-human organism that is the weirwood network. We probably wouldn't expect the singer's brancies in the Bloodraven's case to rise, certainly, but things may have been slightly different in the Winterfell crypts. There's even a tantalizing clue about this in the form of a weirwood vision Bran sees of his father in A Dance with Dragons, long after poor old Ned has passed. Lord Eddard Stark sat upon a rock beside the deep black pool in the godswood, the pale roots of the heart tree twisting around him like an old man's gnarled arms. The great sword ice lay across Lord Eddard's lap, and he was cleaning the blade with an oil cloth. Winter fell, Bran whispered. His father looked up. Who's there? He asked, turning. And Bran, frightened, pulled away. His father and the black pool and the gods would faded and were gone, and he was back in the cavern, the, thick, the pale, thick roots of his weirwood throne, cradling his limbs as a mother does a child. A torch flared to life before him. So it's a strange parallel here. First, Bran perceives the heart tree like an old man with gnarled arms wrapped around his father, Then it cuts back to Bran, and he's on his own weirwood throne, which is cradling him like a mother does a child. So both Bran and Ned are being held in the arms of the weirwood, in other words. And this would seem to represent the idea that all Starks have an ancestral bond with that old heart tree in Winterfell going back to the day of Bran the Builder, and in all likelihood, or maybe even even longer. It follows that any Stark greenseer who's died since the Dawn Age might still be lingering inside that heart tree and the weirwood net that it joins to. So are there corpses being perhaps preserved in the crypt chambers behind the stone doors and forbidding statues, just like those uh, singers that we see in the cave, in Bloodraven's cave? It's possible. We have. It's certainly possible. We haven't actually seen inside one of those tombs, though. We know they're big enough to hide Rickon and Shaggy Dog inside, so they aren't like vertical coffins. They are probably like small rooms with a stone plinth or sarcophagus in the middle of them. Perhaps the bodies of the older Stark dead lie eternally in state, and instead of being consumed by graveworms and turning to dust, they have graveworm-like taproots sunk into them. Remember the description of the mouth of the empty tomb that Shaggy and Rickon hid inside? Like the mouth of some great beast, or perhaps like the mouth of a great big demon tree that drinks human blood and absorbs corpses with its roots. Perhaps that's what's being implied. It's also worth noting that in Bran's vision of Ned, he's cleaning his sword, which implies that the sword was bloody, thus implying weirwood blood sacrifice. It's like we're being shown... Oh, boy. It's like we're being shown that the signature pose of the kings in the north and the kings of winter is sitting under that heart tree, offering it human blood to drink. So all of this is well and fine, but what if this theory is wrong? 
because it probably is, and the bodies aren't being preserved. What about the people who have had the flesh boiled from their bones, for that matter, like Leanna or Ned? It's, it's a common practice when the dead body cannot be interred right away, as was the case with Leanna and Ned, and presumably Brandon and Rickard, who died in King's Landing. Well, there's another possibility to consider, my friends, uh, and it has to do with the bones. Bones have a special significance to whites, as we see in this scene from a brand chapter in A Dance with Dragons. Summer dug up a severed arm, black and covered with hoarfrost, its fingers opening and closing as it pulled itself across the frozen snow. That is an image from George. (laughs) There was still enough meat on it to fill his empty belly. And after that was done, he cracked the arm bones for the marrow. Only then did the arm remember it was dead. So this is one of those moments when our author, who famously avoids magic systems and likes to keep magic as mysterious as possible actually grants us a view into the mechanics of how a certain magic works in his world. Breaking the bones of a white, or even just a piece of a white, is a way of permanently killing it, apparently. Melisandre also tells us that the bones remember, while talking to John about the glamour that she's placed on Mance Raider. She's talking about using Rattleshirt's bone armor to aid the glamour. The bones help, said Melisandre. The bones remember. The strongest glamours are built of such things. A dead man's boots, a hank of hair, a bag of finger bones. With whispered words and prayer, a man's shadow can be drawn forth from such and draped about another like a cloak. The wearer's essence does not change, only his seeming. When someone like Melisandre talks about drawing forth a man's shadow, you should pay attention. It's possible that merely the bones of the kings of winter could be used for potent magic, either in terms of creating powerful shadows or maybe creating others i mean we know craster's babies are turning others but we don't exactly know how that works or what the in-between process is between baby being picked up and other perhaps the potent shadow of a king of winter combined with the sacrifice of a newborn can create a new other and we've seen that the others have human-like bones underneath their icy flesh Shiny white and palest milk glass, of course. So you can almost imagine the winds of winter sweeping down into the stark crypts and spinning snowy bodies around those stark bones, creating an army of winter warriors. That's probably a different fantasy story, but the others are already pretty fantastical if you stop to think about it. With all these theories, we are kind of beating around the bush of a major question. What is so special about the stark dead that they would need to rise? Whether it's the others trying to raise them or the dead rising to fight for the living, why do we need these particular undead folks? That question leads a great theory LML has about zombies, which he will kindly summarize us in brief. And I totally didn't write that. (laughs) Sure, man. (laughs) I definitely wrote that. (laughs) Hands of cold are always old. This is going to be the briefest summary of an LML theory you ever heard. Let's talk about cold hands for a second, boys and girls. The, The children say... They killed him long ago, referring vaguely to the others and the whites. But we don't know exactly how long that was. I mean, maybe it was a hundred years ago, or maybe a thousand. What if it was only two years ago, for that matter? I mean, I think it's longer, but the point is, long missions north of the Wall are treacherous. The further north you go, the longer you stay out, the more treacherous it becomes until you die. Or until you fall into a cave of elves who find you convenient for their purposes. If you have good luck. Point is, if you can avoid the whole starry blue eye, I'm coming to kill you thing, the walking dead are actually very well cut out to do just what Cold Hands does, which is range the north for years and years and years. I mean, forget years and years. 
The walking dead are ideally suited for any dangerous mission north of the wall. They don't have to sleep or eat or stay warm. Those are the three big hazards, besides the whites and the others themselves, and the walking dead just happen to be immune to all three. It just so happens we have a certain Lord Commander of the Night's Watch who is about to become the walking dead. Forget the show canon for a second, which basically brought John back to life as good as new. We are talking about Book John, who will probably be something like a better version of Cold Hands or Beric, depending on what magic is used to reanimate him and how it all shakes out. Ice or fire doesn't really matter in the context of this discussion, actually, because either fire or cold whites would be impervious to cold hunger and the need for sleep, as long as they were conscious and not possessed by the magic of the others. And in fact, part of your theory is that John will become a better white than, say, Beric or Stoneheart, because John is also a skin changer, yes. unlike those other two, as far as we know. The Varamir Six Skins prologue of A Dance with Dragons is kind of like Skin Changer 101, and just as an aside, a terrifying look into what being a skin changer is actually like. And in that chapter, we learn that John's soul will be preserved in ghost when he dies. Although he will start to fade and merge with the wolf spirit after a time, it's an entirely different process than whatever happens to ordinary people in universe when they die and could allow for a better outcome. Beric and Stoneheart seem like more like remnants of their former selves, fixated on the last things they were consumed with when they died, like those infamous vengeful spirits we hear about from the Starks. Kind of like the way ghosts behave in many stories. Exactly, and I don't think anyone thinks that it would make much sense to bring John back like that from a narrative point of view. I mean, that's one thing that got me started thinking about this. What will John be like when he comes back from the dead? Radio Westeros, um, they had some insightful thinking regarding John's resurrection, and I highly recommend their episodes on RLJ, and uh, The Long Night for everyone, by the way. And so basically, I, I really think the skin changer thing is the key here. I think the process to raise John will be twofold. So first, his corpse has to be raised, and then his spirit, which is stuck in Ghost, has to leave Ghost and repossess his body. Now, for John, this might actually be more like skin changing his own reanimated corpse or body snatching his own reanimated corpse. Now, the result of doing something like this, according to my theory is a skin changer zombie. This is how you make a conscious white who is, in a way, immortal. Now, I assume they can be killed with weapons or fire, but and I'm talking about people like Cold Hands here, but they might not ever wear out or lose their sense of self entirely and fizzle out. They are ideal for ranging the north, like Cold Hands, or journeying into the cold dead lands to face the others, as the last hero did, or as John might have to do before the story is over. In other words, you think that the last hero, Cold Hands and John, are or were all skin-changing zombies. Exactly. And I know there's different theories about Cold Hands, and some people think he's a meat sack being controlled by Blood Raven, but I'd ask people to basically just check out my full argument and consider the possibility that maybe he's a very old skin-changer zombie, and his inclusion in the story might be done in large part to foreshadow John as a skin-changer zombie Night's Watch Ranger. So when we hear that the last hero went into the cold dead lands and confronted the others when no one else could, well, being a skin changer zombie sure would have made that task a lot easier. That's kind of what I'm saying. So you know how they say the last hero's 12 companions died? Well, maybe they didn't stay dead. Dun, dun, dun. We need a piano. Yeah, That's totally. I, I shanked on the spooky sound effects. I just <sighs> ran out of time. Well, yeah, you'll put them in post. It'll be great. There you go. 
That brings up an interesting point regarding the story of the last hero, which we get in pieces. Everyone thinks of old Nan's version of the story, which she tells Bran. The last hero setting out into the cold, dead lands with a horse and a dog and the twelve companions, only to be interrupted with the last hero's companions dead, the last hero's sword broken, and the hero himself surrounded by the others, only to later have Bran recall that the children had saved him in some way which we are not explicitly told. You probably also remember John and Sam discussing the ancient records at Castle Black, which talk about the last hero slaying the others with the blade of Dragonsteel. But there's one other piece of info about the last hero that comes to us in a song the Northmen sing at, at Winterfell in A Clash of Kings. Oh, we will go hunting in the winter. Oh, wait, I'm sorry. Whoa, 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 whoa. What is that? <laughs> I, I just was, I thought we were singing Northmen songs. I... Okay, anyways, the quote says, Much later, after all the sweets had been served and washed down with gallons of summer wine, the food was cleared and the tables shoved back against the walls to make room for the dancing. The music grew wilder and the drummers joined in, and Hothar Umber brought forth a huge curved war horn banded in silver. When the singer reached the part in The Night That Ended, where the Night's Watch rode forth to meet the others in the battle for the dawn, he blew a blast that set all the dogs to barking. So Old Nan tells us that the last hero first journeys out with his 12 companions who die and his sword breaks. But later he appears in the Night's Watch annals, wielding that sword of dragon steel and basically just kicking ass. But we also hear the song about the Night's Watch riding out to face the others in the Battle for the Dawn, which is presented as the end of the long night. It's not hard to conclude that the last hero must have been considered part of the Night's Watch in some sense and included this description of the Watch riding out to fight for the battle for the dawn is the same story of the last hero going out to slay others with Dragonsteel after receiving help from the children of the forest. Right, so what I'm suggesting is that not only did those 12 dead zombie companions of the last hero not stay dead, I'm suggesting that they were all undead skin changer zombies and that they were the first Night's Watch brothers, ideally suited for their task by their undead nature. There's just so much symbolism that implies the Night's Watch as dead, which I will go into in the which I do go into in the Sacred Order of Green Zombies series, which you can find at LuciferMeansLightbringer.com. And I think this is the underlying truth, basically. Cold Hands is the model for the original Night's Watch. He might be one of the last Heroes 12, perhaps, or maybe a more recent skin changer zombie made in the same way. I'm really not sure it matters, actually. What matters is not who he is, but what he is. It's the idea of a skin-changer zombie that's important. And even more than that, what matters really is Jon Snow. And he's definitely about to become an undead skin-changer. So all I'm saying is that Cold Hands is basically foreshadowing Jon as a walking shadow and telling us a bit about the last hero and the original Night's Watch as well. But he doesn't have any undead companions, sad. Or Jon, that is. Yeah. Or does he? Maybe the last hero's original crew is down there in the deepest level of the crypts, lying dormant, but ready for action. And I did point out that when Osha lights a candle, after Bran returns to his body while they're all hiding down in the crypts, the candle makes the shadows shift and appear to wake. And there's exactly 13, one, three, Stark's stone kings, or three, but the, there's 13 Stark stone kings and uh, that are called out there, so... Last hero's group is 12 plus 1. That's 13. That's what I call the last hero math. So it doesn't have to be a literal idea that the actual last hero's 12 companions are down in the crypts. This could simply be symbolic of the idea of skin changer zombie Starks and uh, skin changer zombie Starks who were the last hero's crew. 
So the question is, will the Stark undead be fighting for the living when the others come? Maybe John will get his own army of the dead, and we will get our Aragorn moment after all, rendered in George's personal idiom, of course. So in other words, and to sum up, zombies which fight for the living are obviously a thing. We know this because of Cold Hands and John, and in the show, Beric. The Green Zombies theory isn't directly tied to the Stone Kings of Winterfell, except in the sense that they foreshadow John's plot arc. However, it does show, because I, I do believe John is going to be named the King of Winter in the future. So, But it does. the point is that it does show the idea of a zombie playing uh, on the side of Team Living and fighting the others. And that also the man who leads the fight against the others, Jon Snow is going to be a zombie. So, again, zombies fighting for the living is, is a thing. Important to note that Cold Hands is also labeled a monster. So that's the interesting thing about in the context of the labyrinth and um, minotaurs and things like that. In that sense, John will be a monster too. And when he goes off to kill the others in the whites, he'll be a monster sent to kill more monsters. From what we know of Zora High... That's the guy who broke the moon and killed his wife. He's a bad guy. You don't say. I think I've heard that before somewhere. I don't know where. Somewhere on the internet. Like every podcast, I think. John could very well be, or Zora High could be very well cut from the same cloth. There are all sorts of monsters that could be patrolling the crypts of Winterfell. For George, it's kind of like being a kid in a candy store. He is giving himself tons of possibilities for what he wants to be in his labyrinth. Heck, there could even be dragons. Did you say Dragons? Isn't there some rumor about dragons in Winterfell? Mm. It's funny because the chat actually like moved on to the dragon topic like <laughs> 10 minutes ago. Like totally saw it coming. I saw that and I was like, ooh. They got I knew we should have put that section earlier. No, that's all right. This is all your fault. Let's, let's dig into it. Dragon under Winterfell. Dragon under Winterfell. The next possibility for what slumbers in the dark places of the crypt is a humble, unassuming little thing. Just an egg. A scaly egg that holds the promise of fire and blood. Fire and blood. Everyone remembers in A Clash of Kings, where Bran, while warging summer, sees what appears to be a dragon streak up into the sky and roar. roar. He padded over dry needles and brown leaves to the edge of the wood where the pines grew thin. Beyond the open fields, you could see the great piles of man rocks stark against the swirling flames. The wind blew hot and rich with the smell of blood and burnt meat. And so strong, he began to slaver. Yet one smell drew them onward. Others warned them back. He sniffed at the drifting smoke. Men, many men, many horses, and fire, fire, fire. No smell was more dangerous. Not even the, cold, not even the hard, cold smell of iron. The stuff of man claws and hard skin. The smoke and ash clouded his eyes. In the sky, he saw a great winged snake whose roar was a river of flame. He bared his teeth, but then the snake was gone. Behind the cliffs, tall fires were eating up the stars. I just want to make sure everyone can see my blood candles that I have. <laughs> Apparently they're mine actually, have gone out. This no, is they're, still, they're still rocking. They're, they're black candles and they bleed when they burn. Uh, let's see, where were we? Okay, so this could be this dragon, this uh, flaming serpent, which appears to fly out of Winterfell could be written off as a misunderstanding by Summer's perception, obviously. Could just be an odd occurrence. I mean, sure, the first keep is blackened and burnt and called more of a shell than ever. And sure, Osha looks at it and says, we made enough noise to wake a dragon. 
but that's probably all just coincidence and figurative language. You know. However, just when the dragon under Winterfell theories began to lose their steam, George dropped us more hints in the world of ice and fire that there may be dragons or a dragon-related thing under Winterfell. There are rumors that when Prince Jaceres visited Winterfell, his dragon Vermax may have laid an egg. This supposedly happened during the Dance of the Dragons when the prince flew north trying to secure more allies. Maester Yandel, though, flatly refutes the rumor in his history that we know as the world of ice and fire. We can dismiss Mushroom's claim in his testimony that the dragon Vermax left a clutch of eggs somewhere in the depths of Winterfell's crypts, where the waters of the hot springs run close to the walls, while his rider treated with Cregan Stark at the start of the Dance of the Dragons. As Archmaester Gildane notes in his fragmentary history, there is no record that Vermax ever laid so much as a single egg, suggesting that the dragon was male. The belief that dragons could change sex at need is erroneous, according to Maester Anson's truth, rooted in a misunderstanding of the esoteric metaphor that Bath preferred when discussing the higher mysteries. That was my snooty Maester voice. It was perfect. Yes, well, then lower down on that same page, we get this little pearl. Hot springs such as the one beneath Winterfell have been shown to be heated by the furnaces of the world, the same fires that made the fourteen flames or the smoking mountain of Dragonstone. Yet the small folk of Winterfell and the winter town have been known to claim that the springs are heated by the breath of a dragon that sleeps beneath the castle. This is even more foolish than Mushroom's claims and need not be given any consideration. You know, all you have to do is take common folk and put in the word plebs, and that's basically a <laughs> Brendan Beefish post. Ooh. <laughs> even more foolish, they hear the maester says. Whatever you do, don't look over there, right? What dragon's eggs? It's all a bunch of foolishness. There's no dragons. On a basic level, it's noteworthy that this idea of a dragon beneath Winterfell just keeps popping up. The idea of a dragon heating the springs beneath Winterfell is obviously superstition, but it reflects a certain truth, one which Yandel does touch upon. Hot springs indicate geothermal activity of the kind which can also produce volcanoes, such as at Dragonstone and Valyria. It makes a certain amount of sense to think that dragons might be down there because, well, dragons like volcanoes. It is known. It is known. However, let's examine the veracity of this first claim from the court fool mushroom concerning Jaceres and Vermax because this actually provides a plausible mechanism by which dragon eggs might find their way to Winterfell. Mushroom claims that Vermax somehow laid a clutch of eggs inside the crypts themselves in some theoretical part of the structure which we have not seen that might be kept warm by the water that feeds the hot springs. From what we've seen in the crypts, there is no way a dragon large enough to support a rider is getting into those crypts. Their staircase down is made for people, not giant fire-breathing lizards. Now, perhaps someone simply carried an egg down there. Let's consider a different idea. The lowest level is collapsed, And some of the fandom have long speculated that there is a passage to natural caverns, which may contain a back door to the Wolfswood. Perhaps this is how Vermax found a nice cozy nook for laying a clutch of dragon eggs. And just real quickly cut in the uh, whole theory about Bale the Bard, uh, you know, hiding in the crypts for a year with the daughter of Winterfell. Part of that theory mm. is that the way they could have stayed down there is if there was a little, you know, a route to the forest where Bell could go hunting squirrels and could feed them or something. Or For sure. Anyways. That makes a bit more sense in terms of how does a dragon get into the crypts, but the bigger question remains, why would a Targaryen ever leave a ultra-valuable dragon's egg behind? 
perhaps the dragon just laid some eggs on its own. And for that matter, this also could have happened when good King Jaehaerys and Queen Alysanne visited Winterfell on their royal progress and also brought a total of six different dragons with them. But there's reason to believe that something may, something more intentional may have happened with Prince Jaehaerys. That's right. Now we will turn our attention to a little thing called the Pact of Ice and Fire. That's actually what was going on when Jaehaerys flew to Winterfell to meet Cregan Stark. Jaehaerys was lobbying Lord Cregan and his vassals to join his mother Rhaenyra's side in the civil war known as the Dance of the Dragons. We find out later in the tale of the dance that Jaehaerys, surely with Rhaenyra's permission, made a very specific promise to secure Cregan's support. We have discussed earlier how Stark's role in the Dance of the Dragons... Let it be added that Lord Cregan Stark wreaked many rewards for his loyal support of King Aegon III. Even though he was not a royal princess marrying into his family, as had been agreed in the Pact of Ice and Fire made when the doomed prince Jaehaerys Valerion had flown to Winterfell upon his dragon. So, Jaehaerys, on behalf of Team Rhaenyra, promised a Targaryen princess to House Stark. So, is it possible... That the dragon's eggs was uh, some part of this pact, a down payment or act of good faith. And yes, that is my ancient aliens. Is it possible, voice? You forgot to do this part. Oh, yeah. Well, I've already got a lot going on, so. <sighs> I couldn't also do the George. You don't commit. <laughs> you don't commit, element. Well, you know, I really wish that Party City would start carrying George Sukalukas uh, hair wigs, and then I would, uh, <laughs> I would totally be all over that. But uh, in any case... I would buy that, even not for Halloween. Exactly. <laughs> the idea of the pack being sealed with a dragon's egg makes good sense, actually. Targaryen babies were normally given dragon eggs in their cribs, in their cribs, whoo, slip of the tongue, and it was believed this allowed them to hatch. In other words, the Starks didn't just want a Targaryen princess... They wanted a Stark Targaryen child with a dragon to ride. Should such a person ever exist, you know? I mean, like, eh, that would never happen. This is where the talk of labyrinths and stone angry kings come in. The Starks would want a secure place for the dragon's egg, somewhere that very few people go, and also a place of great mental security for them. The crypts are where their great heroes and kings guard, where their children play. For something as dangerous as powerful as dragon eggs the crypts are an ideal location. When the Starks didn't get their dragon princess after the war, perhaps they simply secreted the egg away down there until the day their promised princess arrived, the living fulfillment of the Pact of Ice and Fire. And walked into the crypts, it appears that person has. While the Starks never got their princess, they got a prince instead. Rhaegar and Lyanna fulfilled the Pact of Ice and Fire from a certain perspective, and their child, John, could be the exact person that egg has been waiting for. However, the kings of winter and their stern presence disapprove of the bastard boy. I find myself in front of the doors to the crypts. It's black inside, and I can see the steps spiraling down. Somehow I know I have to go down there, but I don't want to. I'm afraid of what might be waiting for me. The old kings of winter are down there, sitting on their thrones with stone wolves at their feet and iron swords across their laps. But it's not them I'm afraid of. I scream that I'm not a Stark. That this isn't my place, but it's no good. I have to go anyway. So I start down, feeling the walls as I descend, with no torch to light the way. It gets darker and darker until I want to scream. What caught my attention was that it isn't the Stone Kings that John's afraid of, but something waiting for John in the deeper parts of the crypts that he's compelled to approach. This reinforces the idea of the Kings of Winter as wards and guardians of something else that lurks down there. The labyrinth motif once again. 
As for John feeling like this is not his place, that this could just be a dream projection of his anger not being treated like a true-born son of Ned Stark like he has desired all of his life. However, let's let our freak flags fly and make Woo! some bold statements here. Let's go for it. What if, as discussed earlier, the crypts have a more fantasy-ish defense system than mere walls and angry statues? We have been shown this very kind of astral barrier that prevents shadows and dead things from passing in three places, which we mentioned earlier. The wall, of course, the wards which protect, which protect Blood Raven's cave, and Storm's End, about which Melisandre says, The Storm's End is an old place. There are spells woven into the stones, dark walls that no shadow can pass, ancient, forgotten, yet still in place. Might Winterfell's crypts have similar magical wards to defend them? Here's the point. There may be some part of the reveal of the big secret thing in the crypts, whether it's a dragon's egg or something else, that has to occur in the dream realm. It may be that only the living fulfillment of the pact in ice and fire can pass through these wards and release the monster from its prison. Presumably when the time is right and the fate of the world hangs in the balance. Oh my! Yes, it's interesting because John almost always visits the crypts in his dreams. And each time the dream goes a little further. So it's almost like, and this is just speculation, but it's almost like a dragon dream trying to unfold with the dragon's egg at the heart of the maze calling to John. Something like the dragon's egg called to Daenerys in A Game of Thrones because those eggs were actually triggering dragon dreams before they hatched. So perhaps if John's dream can finish playing out, he'll find a dream dragon impatiently waiting, just like Daenerys did in her dreams. And that dragon will be standing there and holding a sign that says Jon Snow, like those limo drivers at the airport. Wouldn't it say Aegon Targaryen? Let's not go into that. The point <laughs> is that Jon's dreams take him progressively deeper into the crypts. If it is a dragon's egg, perhaps it won't hatch until Jon has made psychic contact with it by passing through these wards. After all, Danny has a kind of transformation by dragonfire experience with her dream dragon before the egg hatched. So maybe a similar thing going on. Look at it this way. Even if a dragon hatched from a potential egg down there, it wouldn't have time to grow to a large size before the story ends. There could still be a useful purpose of having it there. The fact that dragon eggs, even untouched, can manifest as dragons in the dreams of the blood of dragon people means John could have some kind of dream revelation having to do with his blood of the dragon nature, which is critical to the end of his arc. Yes, perhaps the R plus L equals J reveal will come from a talking dream dragon. Wouldn't that be an unexpected twist? Yes, aha. Let's see you try to do that, HBO. <laughs> of course, all the symbolism and talk of dragon's eggs or dragon beneath Winterfell could simply be a metaphor for John himself. That's probably the most likely outcome. I mean, John is a dragon person hidden amongst the wolves, and his quest for identity seems linked to something down inside the crypt, so maybe the dragon is simply John realizing his true identity based on whatever's in those crypts. However, most of the speculation regarding things that could confirm John's identity revolve around something hidden in Lyanna's tomb, and that's obviously the place to hide something that's tied specifically to John. But John's dreams call him to the deeper parts of the crypts, and whatever is down there is most likely to be something ancient and mysterious and perhaps horrific. Dun, dun, dun. Oof. One more, guys. One last possibility. Night's Queen. 
the Night's Queen herself. Again, the chat beat us to this one. I saw this one about like five, ten minutes ago. You know, the people <laughs> the people that listen to my podcast are, uh, let's just say they're not the dumbest people on the internet. <laughs> Those are just fans. Those <laughs> Oh, below the belt. Got him. Below the belt. Hey, I'm one of Jess' fans. Hey, I resemble that <laughs> remark. You resemble it? I knew it. You are one of the dumb Jeff fans. Totally. I fall for every every <laughs> trolling tweet. I'm like, hey, that offends me. Type, 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 type. Hey, a factual error over there, <laughs> Brendan Beethish. <laughs> no, okay. I trolled him back earlier today, but uh, let's let's go ahead and roll with Night's Queen here. Sick burn. All right. And now, for the audience, if you will please don your tinfoil hats and settle in, things are about to get weird. You know why? Because I wrote this entire section. (laughs) It's going to get strange. You're not supposed to let him see behind the curtain, man. I pulled it back because I don't want you to get blamed for whatever this is. (laughs) I appreciate that. (laughs) What if, at the end of the long night... The Starks bag the most dangerous game of all. Not a minotaur, a dragon, or an army of undead zombies, but the infamous Knight's Queen of Legend. The Knight's Queen, although she's never referred to by that name in the books, was supposed was the supposed corpse bride of the Knight's King. A woman was his downfall. A woman glimpsed from atop the wall with skin as white as the moon and eyes like blue stars. Fearing nothing, he chased her and caught her and loved her, though her skin was as cold as ice. And when he gave her his seed, he gave her his soul as well. He brought her back to the night fort and proclaimed her a queen and himself the king. And with strange sorceries, he bound his sworn brothers to his will. For 13 years, they had ruled Knight's king and his corpse queen, till finally the Stark of Winterfell and Jormen of the Wildlings had joined to free the Watch from bondage. After his fall, when it was found, he had been sacrificing to the others. All records of Knight's king had been destroyed and his very name forbidden. We know very little about the historical Night's King other than what Old Nan tells us, and even less about his icy queen. But what we do know paints a fascinating picture, particularly of her. The pair were supposedly sacrificing to the others, and from Craster's example, it's very likely that this means they were gifting theirs or someone else's human children to the quote-unquote cold gods. However, there's another interesting possibility suggested from these quotes. That's right. Old Nan's story says that the king gave the knight's queen his seed when he gave her his soul. Or he gave her his soul when he gave her his seed. They both, uh, he gave her both of them. And that sounds a lot like what we've seen happen with another king in Westeros named Stannis Baratheon. Is the brave Sir Onion so frightened of a passing shadow? Take heart then. Shadows only live when given birth by light. And the king's fire burns so low, I dare not draw off any more to make another son. It might well kill him. Melisandre moved closer. With another man, though, a man whose flames still burn hot and high. If you truly wish to serve your king's cause, come to my chamber one night. I could give you pleasure such you have never known. And with your life fire, I could make a horror. Davos retreated from her. I want no part of you, my lady, or your god. May the seven protect me. Your Melisandre's not very strong, Matt, I have to say. <laughs> I know. I, I'm not good at the female voices. I tried. Uh, yeah, even Roy Dottrice was probably better than you at that one. Uh, let's see. And I Oof. love Roy Dottrice, but he's notorious for not being the greatest uh, on the female voices. I'll just say that. Because <laughs> I really do love Roy Dottrice. In any case, Stannis and Melisandre, we're definitely getting hot and heavy. And it's after they have sex that Mel has the ability to birth these black shadowy children. 
which she does by drawing from his life fires. When Davos sees the shadow baby in the cave beneath Storm's End, he immediately recognizes it as Stannis's face and shadow. But what does this have to do with the Night's Queen? Glad you asked. Glad you asked, audience. Melisandre the Fire Priestess gives birth to black shadows, and wouldn't you know it, there are white shadows in A Song of Ice and Fire as well. The others made no sound. Will saw movement from the corner of his eye, pale shapes gliding through the woods. He turned his head. He glimpsed a white shadow in the darkness. And then there's another one, also in A Game of Thrones. It says, Mormont snorted, leaving no doubt of his view of men who'd send gold cloaks against a knight as renowned as Barristan the Bold. We have white shadows in the woods, an unquiet dead stalking our halls, and a boy sits the Iron Throne, he said in disgust. And when Gilly and John discussed the others outside of Craster's, what gods? John was remembering that he'd seen no boys in Craster's Creep, nor men either, save Craster himself. The old gods, she said, the ones in the night, the white shadows. You just said Craster's Creep, and I think that was, uh, yeah. that was right on the money, I actually. Think it works. Yeah, it totally we'll, works. We'll keep it there. So the point is, and, and people who've listened to uh, my first Moons of Ice and Fire episode know that there are, there's quote after quote where um, the others are called white shadows. It happens like five times at least. So Melisandre, what she's doing is she's taking Stannis' seed and making his soul into a black shadow or making black shadows from little pieces of his soul. And then we have Night's Queen described as doing something very similar uh, in terms of taking the seed and soul of the Night's King uh, and then making the others who are called White Shadows, so White Shadows and Black Shadows. And to further the comparison between Night's Queen and Mel, the story from Old Nan states that the Night's Queen was cold to the touch, while Melisandre, of course, is always described as warm to the touch, as if she has some sort of fire kindling inside her body. So it appears that Night's Queen is the opposite of Melisandre, like a blue or ice priestess to Mel's red or fire priestess. And of course... Here, uh, this, the seed of this original theory comes from Durin Durandin, one of my good friends from the Westeros.org forum. And you can look up his theory. It's called One God, Two God, Red God, Blue God, Melisandre and the Night's Queen. And it's one of my favorite theories ever written. So I highly recommend that and a giant shout out to him for this one. So to mm-hmm. bring this back around, this makes the queen, the Night's Queen, essentially the powerful one in the other power structure as she appears to be the only one who can create new white shadows or others, or at least uh, I think she was the original one who did that. But in any case, mm-hmm. we've only ever seen male others, and the taking of Craster's children implies that they've not found a way of replacing the queen amongst themselves. It seems like they've got some other process they're using that doesn't involve a knight's queen. Yeah, some sort of ad hoc thing where they're not creating new ones, maybe they're just sustaining themselves. But the queen from old man's story seems to be the one that can create new creatures in a way yeah it's interesting because the show actually shows us the transformation but the books don't they just show the others basically collecting the male sons and we 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 hear um gilly's family refer to the others as craster's sons and you know the brothers of gilly's baby but they could be inferring that so we don't know exactly what's going on behind the curtain there that's true This would make her incredibly important as a target for the humans and the children during the long night. As long as she lives, the others will creating new icy soldiers to raise and command their armies. It's also not as simple as just killing her, as that would not stop the undead hordes from attacking. But if you could kidnap her, take her hostage, well, that is an incredibly common and strong strategy even in modern Westeros for getting a foe to stay their hands. Wyman Manderly spells this out for us in A Dance with Dragons. 
I did dare not defy King's Landing so long as my last living son remained a captive. Lord Tywin Lannister wrote me himself to say that he had Willis. If I would have him freed unharmed, he told me, I must repeat my treason. Repent my treason. Not repeat. <laughs> not repeat. <laughs> definitely not. I must, no, definitely not. Repent my treason, yield my city, declare my loyalty to the boy king on the Iron Throne, and bend my knee to Roose Bolton, his warden of the north. Should I refuse? Willis will die a traitor's death. White Harbor would be stormed and sacked, and my people would suffer the same fate as the reigns of Castamere. Tywin's threat is on Wyman's second son, and... It's incredibly effective. The threat of killing his hostage neutralizes White Harbor and gets Lord Manderley to bend over backwards for the Bolton, Freys, and Lannisters. He lets them into his castle. He lets them take over his court. Imagine what a similar tactic would do to the others. And that gets us to a fundamental question posed in A Song of Ice and Fire. Which is, what do the others want? I get asked that at least once every live stream. Yeah. Just like everyone else who ever has a live stream. Nobody knows. Everyone has a theory, too. It's a damn good question. Some say the destruction of the Starks, the extermination of all humans, or perhaps simply just an endless winter that kills all of their life. However, what if they truly want their creator and queen back? How far would they appease the humans and children just to keep her alive? And this is where the labyrinth of Winterfell and positioning of the weirwood over it comes into play. It's possible that deep down in these crypts, at the very, very end, beyond the oldest tombs, the Night Queen of legend is being held hostage thousands of years later, trapped in the center of a maze her others have been able to solve. But that doesn't make sense. How could she still be alive? How could she? Let's look back at what Melisandre and presumably what the Night's Queen can do. They take the soul of another and remove it from their body, birthing it into a shadow child. So this is like a proof of concept, and you can separate that you can separate someone else's body and mind from one another. In addition, while the body and soul are separated, the host has fitful dreams that they can't be woken from until their soul returns. For a long time, the kitten did not speak. Then very softly he said, I dream of it sometimes, of Renly's dying, a green tent, candles, a woman screaming, and blood. Stannis looked down in his hands. I was still abed when he died. Your Devon will tell you. He tried to wake me. Dawn was nigh and my lords were waiting, fretting. I should have been a horse, armored. I knew Renly would attack at the break of day. Devon say I thrashed and cried out, but what does it matter? It was a dream. I was in my tent when Renly died, and when I woke, my hands were clean. As mentioned before, weirwoods have the ability to keep bodies alive long past the point they should have died. So, this could be the trap for the queen. The children and the men entangle her with the weird roots like they do with the singers and Bloodraven to keep her body alive. Separate and trap her mind in the Weirwood network like LML talks about in many of his theories using the same mechanism that the black and white shadows are created. And then you have a permanent hostage that will never die and keeps the others on the other side of their wall indefinitely. In the meantime, while they are back on their side, you can prepare your defenses build a giant ice wall even, outfit a massive army for when they return, mine all the dragon glass in Westeros. Because the, the others will eventually return, the prison will fail. Winter is coming. Right, and something may have gone wrong recently. The others are invading, and this perhaps indicates that they no longer fear their queen dying, or perhaps they no longer fear her execution. Mm. They march, because if perhaps that's why there needs to be a Stark in Winterfell. Exactly. They know there's no Starks in Winterfell, and... There you go. So they march their undead armies to the wall, 
kill rangers with impunity, slaughter the wildlings, and seem to be preparing for total war. So what changed? Well, one major thing changed in the last 15 to 20 years. All throughout the history of the Starks, the special tombs and statues have been given only to males. George calls this out to us often, how there are all these kings. But Ned Stark broke that tradition and put Lyanna in one of these special tombs, gave her a statue, but then didn't give her a sword. It's kind of unclear what the swords really do, but what is important is that George wants us paying attention to it. Three times he has called out that the swords are missing and that this signals that something is wrong with the tombs. Yeah, I'd say that's safe to say. So this could mean that the queen finally has a way out of the tombs or even out of the weirwood net. The queen is slowly slipping her prison and waking up from her endless nightmare in a new body, perhaps. But wait, didn't Leanna's body have the flesh boiled off and only her bones made it to Winterfell? Yes, clever listener, that's correct. However, as discussed earlier with the king's, bones have some special connection to the soul and to magic. And they also contain blood marrow, as uh, Monica Lemos pointed out. So there's also the blood of, you know, obviously blood magic is a very powerful form of mm-hmm. magic, and the bones contain the blood marrow. So maybe that's part of it, too. In any case, um, as we discussed, the bones have that special connection to soul and magic, and the others have skeletons that they build their icy bodies around. So it may be trivial for Leanna's bones to be co-opted into a new host body for the Ice Queen. I mean, that, that could be pretty easy magic for her to do. So yep, something we've seen already. So it's basically the same theory we were talking about before, is maybe the bones are all you need. So beyond yep. the intrigue of all this crazy tinfoil, there's an excellent reason George might have the Queen in the crypts and might have her raise Lyanna. I mean, it's an incredible amount of dramatic tension and horror. John spends mm-hmm. an inordinate amount of time thinking about and dreaming of the crypts and how all these kings are returning to life when he walks past. How horrifying would it be instead? If, that, if it's John's own mother that is the one who returns from the dead. I trust George could make this happen if he wants to. At some point in the coming books, uh, <laughs> there's going to be coming books, right? They're, they're coming. So they are coming. They're, they're definitely okay. coming. Definitely coming. Okay. Most fans assume that John will find out about R plus L equals J, and this possibility presents a horrifying choice for him. He will finally find out who his mother is, and then he will instantly have to struggle with whether or not he can kill her. We've seen George already play with this idea, although on a much smaller dramatic scale. I'm speaking of when Samuel Tartley had to fend off the white of his Night's Watch brother, the ironically named Small Paul. Small Paul, do you know me? I'm Sam, Fat Sam, Sam the Scared. You saved me in the woods. You carried me when I couldn't walk another step. No one else could have done that, but you did. Sam backed away, knife in his hand, sniveling. I am such a coward. Don't hurt us, Paul, please. Why would you want to hurt us? And this is a guy that Sam doesn't even have particularly strong affection for. Now imagine instead it's John, and he's staring at his newfound mother's stone face. And then he hears scratching, like an animal pawing at stone. And it gets louder and more desperate, fist beating on the wall behind the statue. A woman screams inside of it, yelling for help. John is in a unique position, being undead himself at this point, to recognize the opportunity rather than danger in opening the tomb. She could be like him, more or less returned from the grave basically intact. He could get to know her after all this time, finally have the mother he's craved his whole life, and that cat could never be. 
But then, like Small Paul does with Sam, the Night's Queen might instantly try and kill John. Or even worse, she could just cackle menacingly as she walks down the rows of the crypts, bringing back all the kings of winter from their tombs. Artos Stark, Cregan Stark, Brandon, Rickard, all 13 that were mentioned before, and ten and 10,000 years of skeletons. They all stumble out of their tombs with their burning blue eyes and grab the, sto- the swords from their own statues. This would be John's nightmares literally coming true before his eyes. This is the kind of horror, betrayal, and foreshadowing you would expect from such a talented horror writer as George R.R. R. Martin. Dun, dun, dun. All right, folks. Woo! Yes, that took a little longer to read than we thought. That took, that took a bit. Yes, that was, a, that was a little bit of fan fiction at the end. I am sorry. <laughs> but I like the idea, I really do like the idea of something more to the Night's Queen story. She's such a potentially potent character, and we don't hear very much about her at all. It's like she's some sort of ice priestess succubus that's just wandering around north of the wall, and Night's King's like, hey, look at that. Hey, look, she's pretty hot. Like her I'm going to go yeah, over she's there. Hot. Striking blue eyes, yeah. Yeah, she's kind of a faceless character, but he drops her in in such an important role. And I really, if, as you know, if, if you've listened to my last two Moons of Ice and Fire essays, you know that I think Night's Queen is perhaps the original mother of the others. And the story that we're given of her sacrificing to the others with the Night's King is actually the story of her creating the others with the Night's King. Mm-hmm. And whether or not that's correct or not, I mean, this, there's a potential for her to be a lot more important than we know. So the idea of her lingering on inside the, uh, inside the Weirwood Net is is very, very tempting. It's an idea I sort of stumbled into before we did this episode. And the same goes for the Night's King. He could easily be stuck in there, too. That's the whole thing about the Weirwood Net being like a, a prison or a trap, is that it could have... I mean, who knows who's in there? Uh, one part we didn't exactly touch on is that why would the prison be failing now? And it could be that not only are the Starks gone, but uh, since the Targaryens have conquered, the Starks are starting to slip away from old god worship. Um, they may not be giving the weird tree enough blood. They may not be washing their sword off enough or giving it sacrifices like the whole, like the hard old kings of winter used to do regularly. Yep, that's a possibility. If it's true that the blood sacrifices uh, have something to do with maintaining the weirwood net organism or maintaining the prison, then there could be uh, the decrease of blood sacrifice. It could be a bad thing. Could very well. All right, you want to take some questions? Let's do that. And in fact, I was going to ask you to start off taking the questions so I can take a quick break. Oh, my goodness. Okay, so let's yeah. scroll up. Fired up. We'll I already right answered back. that one. Yes, that was fan fiction. Um, could she be just a breeding other and the story is meant to just tell us how to breed with them from chicken lipstick? Um, I don't think she's just the breeding other because it seems that they are more like a hive of sorts. That imagine them more as like insects sort of or like uh the queen bee of the hive without her the the others are sort of lost and you can sort of see that they spent ten thousand years doing what beyond the wall just kind of sitting there whereas when she was still a part of their organization they were getting shit done they were sacrificing from the night fort ruling the night's watch and i think she's way more important than just sort of the breeding other uh, let's see here. 
What if the Night's Queen is the great other from Fish B20? That's not Brendan B. Fish, is it? I don't think it is. Maybe. Who knows? Maybe he has multiple accounts and he's just trolling us. What if the Night's Queen is the great other? That could definitely be true. Um, if you think about it in terms of fire and ice and what we talked about with the power structure of the others and how she's seemingly at the top, then she would be the greatest enemy to the followers of R'hllor. And if you believe that the faith of R'hllor is sort of a response or kind of like a carryover of worshiping Azora High and ending the Long Night, then that would make perfect sense that she is the one they really fear. Yamos. Oh, sorry about that, Monica. How would NA plus J modify my theory? Mm. Well, NA plus N plus A equals J would have to be true for me to take it seriously. Um, I don't know. It could be the same stuff. If John is actually the child of Ashara Dane, then um, there are many theories that she is also, that the Danes go back to an ancient... Um, ancient part of the great empire of the dawn and where lml thinks they are dragon lords himself oh and he's back and i'm back look at this guy yes i'm no longer the king of winter getting a little tired of the beard yeah i took that mask off and felt so much better but i do still have my cool night's watch cloak on and my uh (laughs) my snappy t-shirt i I got this somewhere i'm not sure where I got a chain, but it's only one chain, not two chains, sadly. Yeah, 36-inch chain. (laughs) Uh, We were talking, I was talking about the question from Matt Kemp. How would N plus A equals J modify this theory? I'm sorry, what? Did you you say something? Something's wrong with my earpiece. I didn't, did you say, it sounded like algebra. What was that? Uh, It's the adorable theory known as Ned plus Ashara equals john i am a known skeptic of this theory i am and so too. i shall withhold comment I, I don't think it would change that much though um it would just sort of take out the parts of the knight's queen where it would matter to john because the danes are likely dragon lords too so well that's kind of the whole thing it's like if john is uh, were somehow to be i'll say it like this when um i did seriously investigate the non-RLJ theories. The one that most interested me was a Stark Dane parentage for John, because if the Danes are ancient dragon lords, then it's almost the same symbolism. It pretty much all works. Um, so if RLJ is wrong, I, I mean, I don't think it is, but if it is, I hope he's, I, I would have to assume that he's a Dane, but that's about as much as I can well, say. Well, he is a Dane anyways. He's a Dane right now. Well, that's, that's true because, um, uh, Makar Targaryen married uh, Diana Dane back a few generations. Yep. So actually both Danny and John are like a quarter or so Dane, if you want to think about it that way. It's, it's some small percentage. They're part everything. Yeah. So, you know, it doesn't mean that much, but if you want to, it's the there. Thing, the thing that's interesting is that basically Blackwood and Dane are the two bloodlines that are injected into the Targaryen line before they have incest for three generations and then John and Danny and Rhaegar. So It's very strange. Yes. Blackwoods, I love the Blackwoods. I'm gonna, I was gonna write a history of them and argue that they were part of the 
Ward King that they ran south escaping the Starks, but I got beaten to that one, sadly. Okay, so I finally do a live cast that isn't about meteors, and I have Chicken Lipstick asking me, slightly off topic, could you touch on Lightbringer being of the second moon? <laughs> uh, do you want me to just, like, take a nap while you do this? <laughs> uh, I've made a couple of podcasts about that. Um, <laughs> I do think that there was a sword made from the black moon meteor, and I think ultimately we have a black and a white meteor sword. And I actually talked a little bit about that in the Moons of Ice and Fire Dawn of the Others episode that I just put out, so check that out. No, it's okay, Chicken Lipstick. I'm just having fun. You don't have to apologize. It's all good. Um, let's see. Uh, let's Going back from we were at Matt Kemp, so I'm going down from there. Mm-hmm. What's our favorite color? Black today, I guess. Always black? Usually I say red, but... Mm, fire and blood you are basically i like i like the color green uh dark forest green that's a nice color it is good um how long is this gonna go until we run out of cool questions or until we fall asleep well, i wouldn't say that probably like another 30 minutes or something like that yeah <laughs> um let's see here so that's from connie super so from monica yamos she corrected our pronoun- my pronunciation could she be maris the daughter of garth um, referring to the Night's Queen. Um, I guess in the sense that uh, I think I always think of Azor High and Night's King as horned lord figures like Garth. Mm-hmm. And um, who was it? No, it's Uthor Hightower that married Maris the Most Fair. So Maris the Most Fair was a daughter of Garth, mm-hmm. making her a potentially like an elf woman or a child of the forest hybrid woman or something like that. And then she marries Uther Hightower. The Hightowers, like the Danes, are very likely to be ancient dragon people. So basically that would make Uther Hightower another name of Azor High or the Knight's King and Maris the Most Fair as a Knight's Queen. It's hard to say. You know, I always like to look at these things as archetypes and try to avoid getting real specific and saying these people are definitely the same person. It's hard to say. Um, oh, by the way, you dragged the a window on top of my face. Oh. Uh, but the archetypes do um, – there you go. Is that better? Uh, yes. Let me see. Yeah. But the uh, the archetypes do um, line up. Yeah, sure. It could be – she could be anybody. She could be nobody. I mean that's the point of these histories. They're 10,000 years ago during the Dawn Age. Uh, George is not going to give us an exact person. It could be anybody. Really. Although I did notice that um, there's a Maris um, – uh, serving under, uh, who was it? The um, the windblown, pretty Maris. No, okay, there was pretty Maris on the windblown, mm-hmm. but then um, the and on the wall, one of the other forts, John gives to, um, was it Leathers, or one of one of the the old guy who used to train the swords master, hmm. takes and oh, I'll pull up the line. It's I think Leathers was a wildling, wasn't he? Yeah, but then he became a Night's Watchman. It oh, was the guy right. before Leathers. Um, I'll find oh, uh, Iron Emmet. Iron Emmet, that's it. So um, the dollar said makes a joke about how Pretty Maris is serving under Iron Emmet, which, you know, they're yeah. hooking up. <laughs> so sex there joke. is a woman named Maris having sex with a, with a commander of a Night's Watch castle on the wall. So if you like parallels, then there you go. Sure, there's lots of Night's Watchmen getting it on. That's sort of the point of their little town. Getting it on. Mm. Okay. Uh, yeah, dude. If they have if they have like good drugs 
in Westeros. <laughs> like, all, clearly the good drugs are in Essos. Oh, yeah. But if you wanted to score some illicit drugs, it seems like Molestown is a place you could go. Molestown seems great. <laughs> it's just like... It, so many other places in Westeros sort of feel like um, they're ancient and carved out of nowhere. Molestown is one of those places that seems like it, like a frontier town popped up out of nowhere. I picture Molestown like um, in that one scene in the Matrix trilogy where they're all partying underground and they're super grimy, but they're all having like a techno dance party and stuff, and it's all sweaty. Oh. That's what I picture Molestown to be oh, like. Oh, God. Oh, God. <laughs> uh, we got another question here from San Rixian. It is, it is Halloween after all. Oh, my God. Yeah. Well, close to it. <laughs> If we're going from Gurm-like things having historical backgrounds, do you think John is the new Azor High and Danny could be his Night's Queen, reflecting the myth of OG Azor High? Yes, I think that's very possible. They could be they could be switched, where it, before it was the where John will be the undead one and Danny will be the live one. Oh, that's yeah, that's definitely how things work out sometimes. Yep. George gives yeah, gives inversions. you one pattern and then just sort of changes the details a little bit. So you can still recognize it, but it's not the same. So check this out. I will give you guys a little bit of a preview of Moons of Ice and Fire 3. Actually, this is all the way from Moons of Ice and Fire either 4 or 5. I've split these things up so much. But in there, I talk about Jon Snow and his Night's King Echoes. Mm-hmm. And he does a Night's King scene with Val that's really awesome. Ooh. Yes. So let me I, see if I can. Jean Valjean is my favorite ship. I wish it happens. Well, can you explain to me why it's Jean Valjean? Because it sounds cool. Okay. There's, there's, no, there's no reasoning behind it. It's just that, you know, Jean Valjean from um, Les Miserables. Or Les oh. Mis. I, okay. That's, that's, I, was th- I was tickling my brain from somewhere. So check this out. Um, It says... uh, No, that's not it. Ah, Then Ghost emerged from between two trees with Val beside him. They looked as though they belonged together. Val was clad all in white. The white woolen breeches tucked into high boots of bleached white leather. White bearskin cloak pinned at the shoulder with a carved weirwood face. White tunic with bone fastenings. Her breath was white as well, but her eyes were blue. Her long braid, the color of dark honey, her cheeks flushed and red from the cold. It had been a long while since John Snow had seen a sight so lovely. Have you been trying to steal my wolf, he asked her. The <laughs> thing is, his wolf is named Ghost. Ah, trying to steal his soul. That's right, just like a knight's queen. And she's dressed <gasps> all in white with blue eyes, and she's coming from north of the wall, and John is appearing right. from the wall to see her. So it's a very knight's queen-like scene. And a little bit later, um, we get a description of Val that sounds like this. The light of the half moon turned Val's honey blonde hair a pale silver and left her cheeks as white as snow. So the Night's Queen has skin as white as the moon and is cold as ice. And here we have moonlight turning her skin snow white. So it's very similar language. That is interesting. Yes. Um, do you want to go top down, or how do you want to take the more oh, questions? Oh, just it does a free for all. I mean, do a you free best. for all. We Whatever can't we get every. Where, yeah, we can't get okay. everyone. Whichever the ones that look the best to you catch your eye, I guess. Okay, we'll do it that way. Uh, 
Okay, one here from uh, Susan Miller from Watchers on the Wall. Do you work? Do you worry these dead Starks if they somehow benefit the good guys in some ways? Wouldn't it be a little bit too much like Lord of the Rings Ghost Army that Aragorn commands? Yes, potentially so. So the whole idea is that George Martin likes to take classic tropes and then ruin them, yeah. or at least ask the question of what would this really be like if you could have dragons like how horrible would it be it shows us 30 people trying to ride a dragon that all get burnt in uh, the princess and the queen for example they shows us quentin yeah. the dragon tamer like we have all the f- classic fantasy tropes but they're always done in george martin's it's almost like i was talking about this the other day with somebody and it's almost like george says no like this like tom bombadil for example <laughs> oh he we were talking a- about this yeah we was us yeah so we were talking about tom bombadil george hates tom bombadil or at least he doesn't hate him but he always lists that as one of the things that bugs him about lord of the rings but then cold hands in many ways is parallel to tom bombadil as my buddy blue tiger noticed the other day and apparently somebody on reddit noticed like years ago but cold hands is such an alt tom bombadil he's the same guardian of the woods <laughs> character that saves sam from whites in both stories, he saves a Sam from Whites. But the thing is, like, it's totally gruesome and, you know, just awful instead of, like, Tom Bombadil, the happy, like, go-lucky forest guy. So, so Susan, yes, you're on the money. If, if the dead wake, it will be very Aragorn-like. So what we're trying to look for is how can George do a version of that that fits A Song of Ice and Fire? And that's sort of what we're groping here for in the it, dark. It's... R- it's really hard to do because I mean, Tolkien really doesn't give his undead like any kind of downsides. I mean, they're, I mean, they're unhappy. They're undead, but like nothing else really bad happens to them. What we're proposing with the Knights queen and what might be happening to these Kings is they might be sort of locked in an, an eternal nightmare, or at least the queen is. And the resurrection, I mean, for the ghost for all the things about the ghost army they more or less look like themselves when they come out like the stark kings may just look like regular whites or something crazy like that and the fact that the others can command them would certainly turn on what we know of aragorn yeah or if the uh if any of them raised uh were raised by the others or used by the others to work some kind of magic or something the the whole like question that we mm. keep coming back to is if the Stark kings rise in any fathomable way, whose side are they fighting on? And, and, and how does that, I mean, what's so special about the Stark kings as opposed to anybody else? Like the others will have thousands of zombies when they march down. So why would they, why do they need the kings of winter? Or why, do the, why does the team? They don't. Uh, team living need the kings of winter. It's like there has to be something unique about them in order for their, even if it's just their ghosts, like, coming up and doing something in the Weirwood Net or something, like, yeah. what is it about the Kings of Winter that's unique? And so that's why I was thinking maybe some of them were green seers and skin changers. And It's, and to build on to that, this isn't like uh, sometimes George does a thing where he references thing a couple times and it comes true and only, like, the savvy reader notices it and looks back and goes, oh, that's kind of cool. This is something he is constantly doing. This is, in his mind, something worth bringing up to the audience over and over and over again. And if they just rise, there's nothing to it. If they rise, though, and they attack John or they attack Arya or they attack um, somebody in the crypts or if it's the Night's Queen and they accidentally release the greatest horror the others have, 
well, then that is a acceptable payoff to all this foreshadowing. The king's just walking out of the tombs is like a scary scene, uh, just one scary scene otherwise. So, all right, let's grab some more questions. Can a ghost ride a dragon? Probably not. Could there be a ghost drag? Could there be ghost dragons added into the ice, fire, stone dragon mix? Um, ghost dragon. I'm not sure what that well, means exactly. Do you mean like Viserion from the show? Because they could presumably bring him back to life if that's what you mean. Yeah, I don't know. I, I mean, I definitely think a dragon could be whited if George wanted to do that. Uh, maybe they're asking if they if you can skin change one. Yeah, that's that's one of the biggest questions that we're all waiting to find out whether a dead or living person can can do something like that. Because there's, I think that's a big reason why the Valerians never came to Westeros is that their dragons would have been vulnerable to the children of the forest. And hmm. I don't know that they've always known that, but they knew it at one point. And because uh, it's so conspicuous how they talk about Old Town when they're talking about the Fewstone Fortress, and they're like, well, perhaps Dragonlords came here like a super long time ago and suffered some reversal, and they've never come here since then because the Valerians <laughs> never came to Westeros. So it's possible that um, the ability to skin change a dragon is what kept them away. But we'll, we'll find out, I guess. There's also a, um, a crazy bit of tinfoil that myself and uh, Eliana from Maester Monthly have that the dragons are essentially like reborn Valyrians or something crazy like that, that because Ares and other mm-hmm. Targaryens keep having this idea that when they die, they'll rise again as a dragon. And it seems insane, except for the fact that they keep talking about it. So either everyone that talks about it is insane or there's some sort of historical reference that this is actually possible, that like the dragons are Valyrians risen again or something weird like that. So I think I know what theory you're talking about, and that's um, that's in reference to the question of what is the blood of the dragon or how do you create the dragon bond. Yeah. So perhaps it's like one of the ideas was like you, if you sacrifice somebody of a certain bloodline to the dragon, then all of that person's descendants are able to bond with the dragon because that original sacrificial victim is inside the dragon, and thus there's mm-hmm. a blood bond. So it's, it's almost like... You know, the thing, the first thing we think about is like somehow reptilian blood entering the Targaryen bloodline because they have those lizard babies or whatever. But it could be that it was actually like almost the other way around where the, the first thing you have to do is put a Targaryen spirit into a dragon. But I don't know if we'll ever get well, an answer to that. Yeah. So if, if it's going to be anywhere, it's probably going to be in a dream of spring and it will be weird and involve Bran. The one, the one bit of tinfoil that we've thrown out here today that I really... Um, well, I shouldn't say the one bit, but one of them that I really like is the idea that there's a dragon's egg that's giving John dreams because mm. that happened in A Game of Thrones, like I was saying. You know, the, the, the dragon's egg was calling to Danny forever and ever. And it could be that, you know, John or George has, won't let John get to the heart of the Winterfell crypt maze because if he were to get there, then he would have this confrontation with a dragon that would give away RLJ. And so we need to get the RLJ reveal either first or during this experience so that um, it'll make sense, you know. They're also not mutually exclusive ideas. The queen could be there, and there could also be a dragon egg. There's no reason they couldn't both be down there. Yeah, now it's going to get really badass. 
Yeah, it could be a dragon egg in Liana's tomb or Cregan Starks or something like that. And then maybe this maybe it's like the room of requirement from Harry Potter and they just keep throwing magical items down there. <laughs> and a harp. You get a harp. You get a dragon's egg. <laughs> you get the Knight's Queen, loser. <laughs> We'll have to see. Oh, no. Not the Knight's Queen. Damn That's it. the worst one. The dragon's egg. <laughs> All right, let's grab some more questions. Okay. What let's see got? here. Oh, and happy Halloween, um, everybody. Yes, happy Halloween. Uh, question from FishB20, who I suspect is Brendan B. Fish, but you never know. Why did Aegon I never conquer the Free Cities? Okay. Why did he never conquer them? <laughs> Um, well, he had a nice kingdom in Westeros, and it's really hard to rule a kingdom across an ocean. So he probably, I don't know, he's probably, probably pretty occupied with uh, Westeros. <laughs> and no, Fish B20 is not Brendan B. Fish. I've known her for a while. I tried. Yeah. Tinfoiled that. No. Nope. <laughs> uh, the other reason is, I, I don't know, like, um, they would be pretty hard to rule. They are all the, they're very spread out. Whereas if uh, you go across Westeros, you could take most of the riverlands in one go, and you'd have a lot of castles and vassals and incomes and stuff like that. That could be a reason. It's hard to take the others. And also there's uh, the idea that there are still Valyrians in the other cities. Does he really want to burn his own people? Yeah, I, th- I think it's probably the logistical difficulty, but, I mean, he can't conquer. Yeah. He wasn't, like, that crazy, I guess you could say. Um, do you think Dawn is hidden in the crypts? No. Uh, Georgia said Dawn is in Starfall, waiting for the new Sword of the Morning to rise. There could be a sword hidden in the crypts, though, like the original dark, steeled, black Lightbringer sword. Yeah, that would be, <gasps> that would be my ultimate tinfoil answer, but I'm just, I don't even want to jinx it by suggesting it or writing a theory about it. So <laughs> I'm just keeping quiet and hoping for a black sword. My personal favorite thing for the crypts, like an actual item other than a dragon egg, is um, Aegon the Conqueror's crown. Yeah, that'd be good. The it, w- it was lost after the young dragon was ambushed in uh, in Dorne, very similar to how John was killed and robbed too. And then it's gone missing ever since. Well, maybe that's kind of how they lured Rhaegar, the Dornish did, into marrying Elia. Maybe they offered him the crown of Aegon the Conqueror. I mean, that would be highly symbolic for a guy that seemed to think he was Aegon reborn. Yeah, that would be that would be pretty sick. All right, Westeros history. Thanks for coming and thanks for stopping by, guys. Out all the time. And by the way, let's uh, Westeros history has a upcoming episode about the Crips, and it is going to be probably a good bit more rational. And grounded and uh, not as tinfoil-laden. I would assume you guys know how History of Westeros gets down, but I saw Aziz post today that he feels like it's going to be one of their better episodes. He's pretty excited about it. So I think they're recording this week, and then I would expect it out in the next two weeks. So you get a Crips twofer, you know, with our (laughs) sort of wild speculative theories and then the very much more sober History of Westeros approach. So there you go. Thanks for coming, guys. I feel like we were not that out of out of step here. No, not too much. Not too much. The thing that's again, what we did was we took we took act, you know, rep- just amazingly redundant and consistent symbolism that occurs in the crypts, and just kind of tried to ask, you know, what is it? What is he doing here? If this is more than just figurative language, then what what could it possibly be pointing to? There's really no rational answer. Like any answer you try to come up with 
is very weird, supernatural yeah. and weird and far out. So it's going to be something that, that pushes the boundaries of the fantasy in the series. But we'll just have to see how George pulls it off. And I think the the most telling part of that is this, sometimes he tends to inject things later that he thinks of. This is literally from the beginning of the books and all the way through he's dropping this in. For and five books, lots yeah. Of people, yeah, and people just keep overlooking it. I mean, we overlooked it. We This actually started as a Twitter conversation we had, just being like, what kind of weird shit could we imagine happening in the crypts if the dead rose? And then we started researching it, and it was like, this is all over the place. Yeah, it really no was shocking how much it was. Our original idea was that John and Danny would have sex in the crypt. <laughs> and I, crypt sex, and I, yeah. I think HBO definitely might go there. <laughs> they might. Uh, John is down there a ton, and... Uh, he might. They might do it right in front of Liana's statue, and it will be weird and creepy because that's what HBO likes doing. And Chicken Lipstick is saying, "Would not Dragon's Eggs be pretty simple?" Yeah, they, it could. I mean, it just is. It's a question of like, well, is this a dragon egg that's meant to hatch? You know, like one of the things I was thinking of was maybe the egg isn't supposed to hatch. Like, even if there's not time for the dragon to grow to full size. The egg there could simply be giving John those dragon dreams that will confirm RLJ and sort of prove mm-hmm. who he is. And maybe that's just the point of having the egg. Well, it could also grow very fast. Dan- Drogon is only three years old or two or three years old. Well, we, he is extremely young. Yep. I, and I guess and there's George, always the possibility hmm. that it that it hatched and flew out when, uh, when Winterfell was sacked and when, when Summer saw that mm. dragon, which was all the way back in book two. That's true. Um, and if George is planning another time skip at some point, although he abandoned the five-year gap, he could <laughs> he could end maybe the Winds of Winter with a dragon hatching and then start a Dream of Spring with it full grown. I, I don't think he will, but it's possible. Yeah, yeah, that's true. He could skip like a year or something. Who and knows? then suddenly it's the, sign of, the size of Viserion or Rhaegal. Yeah. So it's a powerful thing. It, there are The point is there are... Th- purposes for the egg that could be other than it hatching and being a dragon that could be the dreams it could be a symbol of of who he is um it could be a symbol of the ancient connection that the starks have to dragons that i suspect is the out there so who knows maybe it's like a set of brand the builder architectural plans on a stone tablet (laughs) (laughs) how to build storms End. yeah totally insert spaceship yeah totally spaceship make sure you got your launch pad and a little worry blue lights and stuff. and Don't forget the force field or else some crazy red woman will send no. shadows Is it, it possible that Storm's End is some kind of spaceship? Spaceship? Whoa. <laughs> it's just going to take off and fly. <laughs> uh, I think we have a pretty good, another good question from Matthew Kemp. Craster used to provide empty baby brains that the others could ward so they could reproduce without women. What would you what would you see the purpose of the Night's Queen, if not reproduction, moon maiden stuff? Um I really think that the whole thing about the Night's Queen is that she's the the key to creating the others in the first place. That's my theory, yeah. is that that's that story we get of the Night's Queen, she's already transformed. She's already. This is the difference between Craster's babies and Gilly's babies, and Night's Queen babies. Is Night's Queen? She's already got blue star eyes. She's cold to the touch. 
she's a cold version of Melisandre, goes the theory. And so her children are going to come out not like regular children. They're already going to have an icy nature. So that's different than Baby mm-hmm. Monster, Gilly's baby, who is basically a normal baby from all appearances. <laughs> uh, I also think... No, no, I am, that... seeing, I am seeing the Night's Queen as a symbolic moon maiden. There's no question that I am. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's definitely in there. Uh, also, for what my headcanon for what's going on with Craster's babies and how they're making the others is uh, I think that's one of the reasons we saw Varamyr Sixkins him trying to take a second life as another human and and why we've seen that Bran can do it with Hodor that there seems to be the more developed the brain is of the person you're trying to steal the harder it is so it could be that the others are just taking new babies and taking advantage of the fact that their their minds are not developed enough to hold them off or something yeah I definitely think there could be some very like parasitic like sort of thing like that where they consume their life essence essentially um or yeah yeah, it's i really am i'm waiting to see what that missing step is between babies and others and i also think it's got to involve the weirwood somehow because the others have so much symbolism about coming from the trees um you know the white walkers of the wood from the dark of Mm. the wood a shadow emerged that kind of thing Oh, this is for the Lord of the Rings fans in the chat. We were talking about this the other day. The I, I'm not sure how to pronounce it, but they're called like Hurons or Hurons. Um, they're the dark, angry trees from Fanghorn Forest that make the other trees uproot and go kill the orcs outside of Helm's Deep. And like we were talking about earlier, that George likes taking Tolkien's weird ideas and making them real. Well, the others could be a version of that like tree spirits that have been jammed into bodies and are killing or being vengeful or something weird yeah, like that. Yeah, and I definitely, and people that listen to my podcast know I've got a couple of theories about how the tree spirits could take over a body. So that's definitely a thing. Most of the um, Sacred Order of Green Zombies is the series I would refer to pe- uh, people to as far as all the stuff we've talked about today. A lot of the ideas we've mentioned today or that I've mentioned called out to in my theories that's that's the series that i'm talking about so that's basically all about zombies it's a lot of zombies in there yes and a bit of folklore as is my want i picked the last question your turn Alrighty, let's see here Video Games Vision Quest observes that Night's Queen is the magician. Many of the most powerful magicians so far have been ladies. That's kind of what we're saying. Like Night's That's Queen seems to be excellent the, call out. Yeah, the powerful one in the relationship here, and so there there should be something else to her story, and we're not sure what it will be, but that's one thing we're we're thinking about. We even see that from that quote we read uh, with Davos and Melisandre, where she says, "Like, I mean, I use Stannis's, so but I could use yours too." It's saying Melisandre is the one with the power, not the person she's drawing the life fire from. Right. Exactly. And, and she also remarks that the shadows she makes near the wall would be more powerful because it's a hinge of the world. So it's, mm. it's possible we haven't even seen the full potential of what that shadow baby process can be. So, Exactly, because uh, the Night's Queen and Night's King were, were supposedly from the Night Fort. So maybe if you create shadow babies right near the wall, they harden or become real like the others are whereas if you do them elsewhere they just kind of fade away after a few minutes yes that is the big difference between the white shadow others and the black shadows that mel makes is that mel's shadows seem to dissipate 
whereas the white shadows just won't go away. <laughs> Never. All right. Well, folks, thanks for coming out. I think we're going to go ahead and wrap it up. It's been going on for a while there. And uh, I will see you soon with another Moons of Ice and Fire episode. Joe, you want to plug some of the stuff you've done lately? You've, you've written some good stuff in the recent weeks. I have been writing some some great stuff, I don't, if I say so myself. Um, we recently did a live cast on the Maester Monthly stream. We've got another one coming out with um so Manu- stop and tell Ma- people that you have a Ooh. podcast called maester monthly yes we have a podcast called maester monthly it is myself uh bookshelf stud and glass table girl some most smart of the folks time. guys smart folks three three mods from the a song of ice and fire subreddit and then we bring on sort of whoever's available from the mod team and we talk about the board and the ideas that people want to talk about and sort of give our commentary on them as well as going deeper into a rotating topic and sometimes we fight it out there's going to be an upcoming one about renly and stannis that you will not want to miss cool cool and then you've written a couple things that people can find at watchers on the wall which are uh the last one was about how there are actually ghosts in westeros uh kind of similar to this i was trying to be kind of spooky and i said that um the the green seers are kind of like ghosts because if you from the show brand gets seen and heard a couple of times and the way it goes down in that in the books if you reverse the example you would think brand was a ghost standing in front of you i just break down all the examples and show how it's a thing in both which is kind of cool um and then the la- the one before that was about aria and uh gendry i wrote a ship post out of there you go, folks. That's that's what you call low-hanging fruit. Oh, my God. And then I wrote one about Jon Snow and the Grey King. Sort of what we were talking about with the green zombies, how if he survives the long night, he may live forever. Kind of like uh, LML thinks that uh, cold tans will. Or that the... Or like we were talking about with the crypts. There you go. So right up everyone's alley, guys. More zombie stuff. <laughs> Yep. You can also find me on my on uh, my blog, Clanking Dragon, and of course on the uh, Song of Ice and Fire subreddit. I'm going to be posting something soon about how you make a weirwood tree. Oh yes, this is the one that uh, that you guys you don't know it yet, but you're waiting for this theory. This is a really good one. I'm excited. It's a good about one. It. Yeah. I'm going to try and get that out maybe this week. I was aiming for Halloween, but LML and I got so deep into this one, I lost track of time. We did. We went deeper into this than we thought we would. That is for sure. But those crypts yep. are a maze. Like we said, you can't find your way out quickly sometimes. There's, there's so much more. We left stuff out. And, yeah, and History of Westeros is going to take a totally different angle on it and, and probably catch things that we didn't. So we'll just have to see. I mean, yeah, they're going to talk about how it's the children of the forest cave because it definitely is. Yep. We didn't even talk about that, so there you go. All right, guys, happy Halloween. Happy Halloween, guys. And I will now look for the disconnect stream button again, which is always tricky. Tricky.